Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. A 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They run in a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Funny thing happened to me as I was driving home yesterday. Now, as I am driving home, uh, there it took me a little bit longer to get home than it usually does. I'll tell you why in just a second. And my car, I drive, uh, you know, a little sedan, nothing fancy. But it's a, it's a newer car. I like to lease these cars, and I know they say that that's a bad deal because it, they cars degrade in value. I, I, I don't know. I, I mean, every expert tells you that leasing a car is not a sound financial decision. I still like leasing cars. I, I find that when I have one of these new cars through a lease, I'm a lot less likely to have things like mechanical problems and so forth. But my car is really something. It's got all sorts of safety features. If you're driving towards something... It'll go beep, 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 and it'll, you'll see in big red lights on your dashboard in front of you, it says, break, break, break. And uh, sometimes it'll say that even if it looks like you're driving towards something. Additionally, if you start to swerve out of your lane without signaling, again, a different type of beeping, a different type of alarm. It's got a rear backup camera, and obviously, needless to say, it's got airbags, it's got navigation, all sorts of things. Now, yesterday, as I was, uh, you know, uh, my wife gave me her car because mine was still enveloped in snow. That car, she's got an SUV, and that makes my car look like a piker. Her car is really something. Not only does it have everything that my car has, in terms of safety features, but uh, occasionally I will, you know, start to nod off a little bit if I'm at a red light or something. And then the car in front of me will get going. And if you don't go after the car in front of you leaves, it starts beeping. It starts beeping. Also, if you make certain moves... And this is on my car as well. If you make certain moves that they think are indicative of fatigue, a little indicator lights up in my car or my wife's car with what looks like a cup of coffee. And it says, take a break or consider taking a break. Something along those lines. Basically, it's saying you're tired. Get off the road. Pull over. Do something. 
And it's really amazing to me. Now, why do I mention this? Because it took me a lot longer to get home yesterday than it should have. Because on the way home, I was stuck in traffic because I had passed, and this is at 6, 6.30 in the morning. I had passed not one, but two car accidents. And evidently, this is not something that's unique to New York. The U.S. recorded its highest spike in traffic deaths since at least 1975. Even though my car, and I think every new car that comes out these days, has every safety feature you can imagine, we are seeing more people die in traffic deaths than we have since the 1970s. We are in the midst right now of a national car crash crisis. And I know a lot of you happen to be driving now, and even those of you that aren't driving, you might have once driven or been driven or know someone that's driven. And my question for you is why? Why are we seeing this national uptick in car crashes and and deaths due to car crashes? Because this is getting to a point where the numbers we're seeing are pretty alarming, and things are going in the wrong direction. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. An estimated 31,720 people died in motor vehicle traffic crashes in the stretch between January and September 2021. That is up 12% from 2020. Now, obviously, everything that happened in 2020 is a little bit of an outlier because of COVID and no one working and so forth. But fatalities increased in 38 states. So this is not a New York problem, not a New Jersey problem, not a Connecticut problem. It's an everywhere problem. This is an American problem. The number of car crashes is through the roof. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg said that this is a national crisis, and he's right. We cannot, this is his words, we cannot and must not accept these deaths these deaths as an inevitable part of everyday life. So the U.S. released its first ever national roadway safety strategy. This was just last week, calling for better safety standards in vehicles. That includes automatic emergency braking and pedestrian automatic emergency braking. The bottom line is that developments in vehicle automation and assisted driving, they're, they're around the corner. I mean, you see every year the next generation of cars that comes out has more and more safety features, and yet we're seeing more and more people die from traffic deaths. Why do you think that's the case? Uh, we're seeing a decline in drinking and driving, both self-reporting and the number of drinking and driving arrests. Why do you think there's such an uptick in the number of people dying in car crashes? 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. No wrong answer here, because I'm sure there's a variety of factors. But the fatality rate for the first nine months of 2021 
increased uh, pretty dramatically from not just the previous year, but the year before that and the year before that. More traffic deaths since 1975 going on in the country right now. That's pretty scary. And I think it's something that we need to address. Rather than worry about what some commentator said on some television show, which I've never watched, and whether whether her remarks are offensive or not, this is actually a life or death issue, genuinely. Speaking of life or death issues, coming up in about 15 minutes, very excited to talk with Brian Stetton. Brian Stetton had a brilliant op-ed, in my opinion, in the New York Daily News over the weekend, all about Kendra's Law, all about, uh, it's called New York City's Sanity Check. New York City needs a sanity check, and it chronicles all of these crimes being committed by the seriously mentally ill and how New York has failed to deliver on treating the seriously mentally ill. So Brian Stetton is one of the founders, one of the people that gave us Kendra's Law, and he has studied this issue six ways from Sunday. So we're going to talk with him, and uh, we'll try and get to the bottom of why New York and maybe the country at large is experiencing such a problem with mental health. Cryptocurrency. I don't know if you heard the segment I just did with Dominic, but there's a lot of people that still don't understand cryptocurrency. In fact, I don't know that I understand cryptocurrency uh, fully. Molly tried to give me a, a primer in cryptocurrency tutoring just a few minutes ago, right before the show. All I could do was hope that I would not sound too idiotic in the questions that I was asking her. Well, if you find yourself similarly situated, you're going to want to listen to our crypto panel coming up at 3.30 because cryptocurrency is a very big issue in the news these days. The mayor of New York is taking his paychecks in cryptocurrency. The crypto market plummeted last month. A lot of people's wealth got erased. My friend Vinny says he's buying his daughter a Bitcoin as an investment. Is that a good investment? Is that a bad investment? Is that something that you should do for your children or your grandchildren? What about the environmental impact of this? What can be done on the governmental end? Uh, A lot of mayors are looking to cryptocurrency and Bitcoin as a way to eliminate or reduce income inequality. Good idea, bad idea. We're going to have somebody that, or two people that know a thing or two about this stuff, join me at 3.30. One is very bullish on crypto. He thinks crypto is the future, and he's all about crypto. That's Drew Taylor, the crypto cowboy. Also, a crypto skeptic, Simon Constable, will join me. And in the 4 o'clock hour, my colleague David Wildstein is going to join me. He's the host of the New Jersey Globe Power Hour, a great show. There's nobody that knows New Jersey better than David Wildstein, as you know, if you listen to that show. He's the editor of the New Jersey Globe. So I'm going to ask him what's happening with gerrymandering in New Jersey. But the most fascinating story in the country right now is a story that he's been covering, which has gotten very little attention. And it's the story of this New Jersey political consultant who's been involved in a murder plot. And this New Jersey political consultant actually might, it looks like he murdered someone. So we're going to get into that in the 4 o'clock. we got an action-packed show for you. Molly's got an update on the Girl Scout cookie situation. I want to know, in your opinion, why are we seeing this national crisis when it comes to car crashes? 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Let me begin with Gene in Plainview. Hello, Gene. Yeah, hello. How you doing? 
Yeah, I would say cell phones is the number one thing, and then you got everybody with these brand new cars with the big screen TVs in the front. These big, they're about 12, a foot long, foot by a foot, and you got these laser beam headlights that they're LEDs. You can they're like welding rods when you drive down the street. You know that's interesting. I expected people to mention the uh, the issue of distracted driving with mobile phones. And then as soon as you mentioned the screens that people seem to have, I wasn't surprised to hear you say that. But the the issue with the laser-like headlights, that's something that I hadn't thought of. So you think people are being sort of temporarily blinded by the cars that are coming in their direction with these weird headlights? Absolutely. I've never seen anything like this. All of a sudden, you get all these engineer, these morons who, who design these things. You can... And you see it in people when they back out of a parking spot. They're all looking at their, their backup thing. They can't even back up. Look out your window. It's unbelievable. Uh, uh, Gene. People, people are morons. That's a great point. Uh, well, not about people being morons, but about the lights. I know a lot of those blue laser lights, they're supposed to be illegal. You're not supposed to see them. I have noticed what he's talking about. The These lights that I, I guess are legal because... Otherwise, you know, cars wouldn't manufacture them and police would pull over vehicles that have them. But it it is a little blinding. That is a great point, and it's one that I hadn't thought of. Uh, anything else we're missing? 800-848-WABC. Kevin is in Boston. Hello, Kevin. Well, it comes down to this, Frank. Frank, it's very simple. And it was you yourself, not six weeks ago, said everything was fine and rosy. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Uh, you said everything was swell. And I do not know verbatim your, your, your I, words. I said everything I, was well? Yes, yes. And, uh, like, here it is. You're living in New York with the crime wave, the violence. Uh, God forbid, and that was before the wave of police shootings. But it, it's been all across the board. But this is what's going on with traffic. Since when did you see any traffic enforcement? Once this is vindictive of the Democratic Party, it's far from democracy. They neutered the police, so they're not out there doing their jobs. Uh, the the speed rate, I'm about a, you know a click up a kilometer up from a, <clears throat> a parkway. It's 25 on that parkway. It's very scenic, and you know what? They're going. 50, 55, 60 clicks an hour. When you don't have the police out there, I'm seeing people run stop signs, red lights, if, if they even stop or slow down. So you're saying there's lax, lax traffic enforcement? Right, and it's across the board. Interesting, and interesting. It, well, you know, it's funny. I think Kevin's right to some extent. I remember there were days uh, prior to the whole George Floyd situation where if you would touch your mobile phone, a police officer would pull you over right away on suspicion of texting while driving. These days, I can't tell you the last time I got, I've got pulled over. Now, part of it is because I try to obey the traffic laws. But look, there are days where I have used my phone to use the Waze app to navigate to where I'm going. And uh, I am almost expecting to get pulled over as I, as I tap in an address. And, you know, I try not to do this, but I never get pulled over Two, um, but on the other hand, a friend of mine is a police officer here in Manhattan. He says he's still got to make his quota. 
of X number of summonses for traffic issues and X number of stops per week, per month. Additionally, and this is where I'm, I'm a little surprised at what Kevin is saying, um, because I do see less traffic enforcement from human police officers. However, you do have these red light cameras all over the place. You have these speed cameras all over the place. And I do think that you'd think that would be sort of enforcement by robot, as it were. And I also look and I'm going to get to everybody here who has a theory as to why these traffic crashes are up uh, significantly, not a little bit significantly. But I'd also love to know your solution. Is the solution moving more towards uh, the vehicles that Tesla has driverless vehicles, uh, almost every car on autopilot? Is the, is the solution greater safety features? Is the solution greater driver education? So those are the, that's sort of the twofold question I'm asking you. One, why the uptick in traffic deaths? And two, what can we do about it? And I, at the end of the day, I guess the second question is a whole lot more important. 800-848-WABC. Leonardo is in Essex County. Hello, Leonardo. Hey, Frank. Long time no talk. Uh, the generalized stress and anxiety of the lockdowns, the response to the virus. A lot of people, myself, I'm definitely guilty. We would like to get in a car and enjoy ourselves and take like a leisurely drive. I know people that just do that, some other seniors like myself. But with the generalized anxiety and fear level going up, I believe all the other stuff's true, too. All the technological stuff, especially the blue lights, the distractions uh, from that. Older people have bad reactions to those lights. Um, We're not used to that as much as uh, the old uh, style incandescent lights. Uh, But I, I really think driver education and just general awareness um, of, um, you know, uh, people's uh, emotional state. Let, give it a little meditation before you start the ignition. That's about all I have You know, that, that's very, that. very good, Leonardo. So you'd suggest people are just a little too anxious. They're a little too stressed out when they're driving right now. Right. And the reaction, people would like to take a ride to, to generally – uh, relieve that stress, right? Go for a ride in the country, for example. I know, but it, people do that locally too. Just to, it, it, it's a venting, right, from being cooped up and the rest of it in the house. So, you know, just be a little more aware that there's a lot of people that are doing that and maybe uh, not really paying attention. That's a fine point, Leonardo. Thank you. You know, it's funny. As I'm talking to you, I'm just glancing at the Citizen app. The Citizen app tells you what's going on in your neighborhood with um, different things. It could be a crime. It could be another disturbance. Just now, seven-tenths of a mile from where I am, a vehicle collision with injuries. So these vehicle collisions are happening at one twenty in the morning. These vehicle collisions are happening at 6 o'clock in the morning. I mean, look, I realize this is a city that, we're, that we have a lot more vehicular traffic than other places. But the statistics are not lying here. You can color statistics in certain ways, but if someone's dying because of a car accident, that's not a number that you can make up. These are real numbers. 31,000 people dead, and that is a new record. And I have a feeling that 2022 may be on pace to even outpace that. 800-848-9222. Jacqueline is calling from Brooklyn. Hello, Jacqueline. Good morning, Frank. 
A couple of your callers brought out some very good points that I didn't even think of. Uh, Jean had mentioned about the uh, TVs and uh, also the headlights. Yes, that's true. Um, I think it's very simple. I think it's a matter of increased alcohol and drug abuse. And now in a lot of states you have legalized marijuana, texting, of course, um, and I don't mean to disparage any one particular group, but I am going to say this because I talk from experience. An aging population mm. with both dementia and bad eyesight. Mm. I experienced that with both my father and some of his elderly friends. They should not be driving. Slower reflexes. Uh, they have slower reflexes. <clears throat> and also an increase, and again, I don't mean to be disparaging, but an increase in various Immigrant ethnic groups coming into the country in the past three decades, uh, the first thing that they do is they get a driver's license. Many of them do not speak English very well. They are not only, they are also unfamiliar with the areas that they're driving in. And as far as a solution, my personal opinion is your driver's license, you need to renew it every 10 years. You should also need to take another driver's test, not a driver's test where the individual in the vehicle with you can be paid off, but it should be in a specialized vehicle where everything is monitored, like, you know, cars have black boxes and you can review everything that goes on, the conversation in the vehicle and all of the, uh, you know, things that happen with the vehicle, with stopping, with starting, with parking, etc., you know, uh, there's some great points, Jacqueline, uh, and, uh, you know, it's funny, I hadn't thought of that, but you you make a lot of sense, right? I mean, you're not the same person at 17 or 18 as you are at 65, 70, 75. You, maybe your reflexes are a little slower. Maybe your eyesight's worse. Maybe you're, you've gotten into some bad habits. Maybe you're just out of practice uh, with driving uh, for a while, and yet you still, your driver's license is just as valid if you pass that road test when you're 18 as when you're 80, that that's a very good point. And it's one I haven't thought of. See, this is why we that's why I throw these questions out to you. The tough questions, I just punt to you. I don't want to come up with answers. What have you people for? 800 848 Susan is in Brooklyn. Hello, Susan. Hi there. Yes. Um, obviously, um, this is going on um, before I think your statistics. That um, like the um, I think Colorado was one of the first states to legalize marijuana. You called me like the dragnet um, uh, queen or something last time. That's I right, the, the, uh, the Mrs. <laughs> Mrs. Joe Friday. I like it. Oh yes, when can I be hired? I'll even <laughs> do it for free. But uh, no, and then the combination and the fact that now we have all these, um, you know, chemically. Uh, charged uh, things that are in marijuana as well as, you you know, I just, someone that you called in before just also said about, and you said that, that some of these things are happening very early in the morning because Ambien and some of these sleep aids that are also, you know, just uh, people are addicted to, um, People are still half asleep when they're driving because those drugs were not well tested, especially on women, because they affect your hormones and they just did the tests on men. So, um, yeah, so this is just like a perfect storm of all this SHIT coming together. So, you know, it's funny, the 
the drowsy driving thing is something we've covered a lot uh, with Anson Williams from Happy Days and my own experiences because I know what it's like to to drive drowsy. But you're saying that the the sleep medication stuff like Ambien that is not adequately uh, that's not adequately that that's not adequately tested on women. Well, not just women, women more so, but the way it was tested, there are many cases, I think even remember uh, Cuomo's uh, first wife, uh, that she had some kind of accident. Yeah, and, Terry Kennedy, that's right. Yeah, and no, 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 this, you can Google this, you can go on PubMed.gov and look up, you know, so many of these prescription drugs and then people are on anti-anxiety, they're on all kinds of stuff, and the lockdown, uh, you know, it, it, it's, 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 I say, a perfect storm. It's not just one thing, but then when you combine all of this SHIT together, it, we are in big trouble. We are in very big trouble, not to mention all the uh, now questions about the uh, vaccine was really being made for um, natural virus, which it's now. Pretty- All right, well, we're going to go down the the uh, a road that I don't necessarily want to go down once we start talking about the vaccine. But uh, Susan is we can always count on her to keep alive the spirit of Jack Webb, Sergeant Joe Friday. Marijuana is the flame. Heroin is the fuse. LSD is the bomb. So don't you try to equate liquor with marijuana, Mr. Not with me. You may sell that jazz to another pothead, but not to somebody who spends most of their time holding some sick kid's head while he vomits and wretches sitting on a curbstone at 4 o'clock in the morning. And when his knees get enough starch back in him so he can stand up and empty his pockets, you can bet he'll turn out a stick or two on marijuana. And you can double your money he'll be holding a sugar cube or a cap or two. So don't you con me with your mind expansion slob. I deal with kids every day. I try to clean up the mess that people like you make out of them. I'm the expert here. You're not. Corey in Manhattan Beach. Hello. Good morrow, if it's not too early. But, uh, yeah, I could go on ad nauseum about the reasons why the deaths are up. Even though the cars are supposedly safer with all these airbags and uh, lane departure warning and all this, that, and the other thing, I believe uh, go to the root cause, which is the driving test. I mean, to pass the written exam. You have to get 12 out of 20 questions correct, and it's ridiculously easy. And then you have to go through a short course of driver's ed. And I've, I've known people who have it's taken them three times to do it, and, and then they get a license, and you could basically drive uh, any monstrous uh, uh, you know, rent a huge U-Haul truck or whatever. Well, everything but- you just said is true, Corey, and and I, I'm sure it plays a role into poor traffic habits. But wasn't that true three years ago, four years ago, five years ago? Why the uptick in traffic deaths now? Yeah, I think uh, uh, also people have become more like um, they're playing the video game. Uh, the more we get, everybody is hooked on these electronics. Everybody's on the phone. Interesting. Um, and it and they feel these cars are so quiet. I mean, these days compared to back when we were younger, I think I'm around your age. But you know, it, it took some kind of effort to drive these cars around. We didn't have cameras. You had to look. 
these cars nowadays, they just, especially, you know, these hybrids, they're so quiet. They ride so smoothly. These people think it's like a video game and there's no real consequences to it, to crashing. And in, ser- in all seriousness, there are no real consequences if you, you know, kill some pedestrian. Well, and, no, that's not true. I mean, you, you there are well, very serious consequences. It, Right, but it, but if they deem it to be an accident and you're not impaired or anything, uh, you know, I just had one of my friends bad, badly injured by a terrible driver. I'm sorry to hear that, and, uh, Corey. That's uh, that. I mean, apparently though, that's why we're talking about this. He's not alone, and he could have been worse. I hate to put it that way, but 31,000 people died last year just due to these traffic deaths. People are getting injured literally every day. In terms of these car crashes. Hey, we're going to talk with Brian Stetton about mental health in New York City in just a minute. And uh, why the seriously mentally ill are in such a position to commit so many crimes. And he had a brilliant op-ed in the Daily News over the weekend focused on that. And uh, we're going to get into that in a big way. Let me squeeze in at least one more call here. Those of you that are holding, if you want to continue to hold, we'll get to you. Bruce calling all the way from Lake Tahoe, Nevada. Hello, Bruce. Hi, my daughter works for one of the car companies and uh, she tells me about some of the advances they're making. It's pretty stunning. Safety is going to be a big thing. Uh, There's a big push for the government to get involved with this. There was a lot of money in the transportation bill for upgrading of cars uh, in technology. Uh, The car companies aren't minding it because it's going to be paid for by independent uh, uh, industry. And uh, with safety, you're going to get these cars very quickly. They're going to be self-driving. You're going to have increased communication with the cars. so there's, a, there's something to look forward to. There's a light at the end of the tunnel, it sounds like, based on what you and your daughter are saying. All toward safety, but also giving up your privacy. All right. Well, that's so I guess you win some and you lose some. Right? Good to talk to you, Frank. You do a wonderful job. All right. Thank you, Bruce. There's no accounting for taste. 800 We're going to talk with Brian Stetton next about the mental health crisis. I don't want to overuse the word crisis in one hour, but... These are two issues that I view as very, very serious. Uh, the mental health crisis that is on the that is happening in the streets of New York City. If you look at the um, gentleman that pushed this young woman onto the subway and killed her, you could tell this is not a person that was well. Okay, this was a person who was seriously mentally ill. Why was that person out on the street, unmedicated, in spite of his history, in a position to commit a crime like that? If you look at the people, the person that uh, shot Officer Rivera and Officer Mora, that clearly was somebody that was seriously mentally ill and shouldn't have been in a position to have a weapon and kill two police officers. Why was that person in a position to do just that? Is there a better way? We're going to get into that with Brian Stetton straight ahead. WABC. Frank Marano. 77 WABC.
close my eyes I can almost hear my mother Calling Neil, go find your brother That is home and it's time for supper Hurry on And I'll see two boys Racing up two flights of staircase Squirming into Papa's embrace And his whiskers warm on their face Where's it gone? Oh, where's it gone? The great Neil Diamond singing Brooklyn Roads. Love Neil Diamond. I, you know, I, I usually want everybody to listen to this show, but I would hate for Neil Diamond to tune into this show and hear the crazy things that I'm saying on a daily basis and demand that we stop playing his music on this on this show. And that's one instance where I think not having Neil Diamond as a listener is probably a benefit to us in that he's not demanding that we take his music off. Well, whether it's Brooklyn... Manhattan, the Bronx, or anywhere in our fine city, we're seeing a problem with crime. These seemingly random acts of violent crime have been covered a great deal. And I think a lot of the commentary on these crimes tends to miss the point. It's not as if all of a sudden bad guys started to uh, think that they can get away with more crimes. That's not what's driving these more extreme, violent incidents. Somebody that has put their finger, in my judgment, on what a big part of the problem is, is Brian Stetton, who wrote a terrific op-ed, I guess a couple of weeks ago, in the New York Daily News. Uh, He is the policy director of the Treatment Advocacy Center and a former assistant attorney general. Brian, thanks for staying up late with us on the radio. Appreciate you joining me. Frank, thanks so much for having me on. Great to be with you. So how prevalent is it to have seriously mentally ill people on the streets of New York? Are people literally in danger of encountering someone that's seriously mentally ill on a daily basis? Well, look, there are seriously mentally ill people all around us. There are family members, there are neighbors, and by and large, they are not people we need to be afraid of because I think we have to really keep in mind that with treatment, We have study after study that tells us that people with severe mental illness are no more likely to engage in in criminal acts or, 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 uh, you know, be dangerous or scary than than anyone else. Uh, The the, the problem comes into play when we're talking about this small subset of people with severe mental illness who on any given day are untreated. And, uh, you know, that's a problem with a pretty clear solution. We have to make treatment available to more folks. But, uh, you know, it's estimated that um, about one in 10 homicides in the United States are associated with untreated severe mental illness, which is uh, obviously a small minority. It's by no means uh, the bulk of, of homicides, but it's also a percentage that's disproportionate to the numbers of folks that we're talking about. Uh, these illnesses occur in about 4% of the population, and so it's, you know, it's a disproportionate share um, relative to uh, the, the number of people who are we're speaking of. You write um, that uh, 23 years ago, you and then State Attorney General Elliot Spitzer sat in a Buffalo conference room with the grieving family of Kendra Webdale, and she became the namesake of Kendra's Law. Explain to us what Kendra's Law is and how it came about. 
Sure. Uh, Kendra's law is about outpatient civil commitment. Uh, I think everybody's probably familiar with inpatient civil commitment, that is commitment to a hospital when a person is uh, in an acute psychiatric crisis, when they are a danger to themselves or others and don't understand their need for treatment. We have have always had laws that make it possible to have that person uh, placed in a hospital and, and, and given care. Um, outpatient civil commitment, what we have under Kendra's law, comes into play not when a person is in a crisis, but when a person actually has been stabilized and is ready to leave the hospital, but has a history that gives us reason to be concerned about what's going to happen to them uh, in the community, because we're talking about people who have demonstrated uh, a great deal of difficulty staying engaged with their outpatient treatment. Uh, It's very common that people with severe mental illness lack insight into their illness. They don't always understand they have a need for treatment. Treatment. And so many people struggle uh, to stay uh, engaged, to stay adherent to their medications and other treatment. And so when we have someone who we've identified as, as uh, fitting this pattern, who's, who's been through this ringer, who's kind of caught in this revolving door of the public mental health system, uh, when we release them from the hospital under Kendra's law, we attach a court order to their outpatient treatment plan so that the court has some oversight power and we're able to monitor uh, how adherent they are to their treatment. And uh, also the, the, the law puts the system under the court order as well. So it becomes kind of a mutual commitment where we're going to make sure the person actually gets the services they need. And uh, w- w- what it changes is that if the person then becomes non-adherent to treatment, uh, their caregivers have legal authority to take some action, bring them back to the hospital and reevaluate their needs and don't have to wait for something terrible to happen, wait for them to act out in some, some way that establishes that they're dangerous to themselves or others. We can respond to the non-adherence with treatment and hopefully nip the situation in the bud. So I don't know your politics, but Elliot Spitzer, the attorney general at the time, was a Democrat. The governor at the time, George Pataki, was a Republican. The state Senate majority leader, Joe Bruno, at the time was a Republican. The speaker of the state assembly, Sheldon Silver, was a Democrat. And these entities, uh, Silver, Spitzer, Bruno, Pataki, all worked together to pass Kendra's law. Um, How has it worked out over the last 23 years? Well, to the extent the law has been used, it's been remarkably effective. You know, there there were really terrible predictions made by some of the opponents to the law who said that we were violating people's civil rights and said that, you know, this isn't going to work. It's going to be counterproductive. It's going to drive people underground and keep people from seeking treatment because uh, they're going to be afraid of this scarlet letter that's going to be placed on them uh, by, by, by being placed into this program. Um, none of that, of course, happened. And in fact, the law has, for the people who have participated in this program, um, have actually seen their freedom increase quite a bit because they are not spending as much time in the hospital and as much time as jail. Uh, we, we've seen really dramatic um, impacts on hospitalization and incarceration rates for people who have been through this program. And these are really the most vulnerable individuals in the public mental health system. Um, People who just rack up staggering numbers of hospitalizations. And look, it's not a magic wand. These are still people who struggle a great deal and and will inevitably wind up back in the hospital from time to time. But um, the, the, the research is very clear that the not only do they get hospitalized less often when they do go in, they they get out sooner because they go in less acutely ill. And so it's allowed people to you know live the lives of their choosing much more than they would have been able to had they had these quote unquote freedom of, of not being made subject to this law. We're talking with Brian Stetton. He's the policy director of the Treatment Advocacy Center and a 
former assistant attorney general, also happens to be one of the architects of Kendra's law. Brian, you prefaced your answer to my last question by saying to the extent that it's been used. Am I to understand then that Kendra's law hasn't been broadly used enough in New York State and New York City? Well, I think there are really good reasons to um, to wonder whether it's being used as much as it ought to be. You know, the law has very clear criteria as to who is eligible for it. It's not for even the typical person with severe mental illness. It's specifically for people who have a history of not adhering to their treatment and winding up in the hospital or committing acts of violence as a result of that. And, you know, the goal of the city and the state really should be to ensure that every person who meets those criteria, who has this history and at this moment are found by their doctor to be unlikely to adhere to treatment voluntarily, every person who meets those criteria should be a part of this program. And the law allows for a court order that lasts for up to a year, but that can be renewed. And there are folks who are going to graduate from the program, who are going to develop habits of treatment engagement through the use of this uh, law and will be able to do it voluntarily after a period of time. There are others who are going to need to have this renewed and stay on it for you know years. Uh, it, it just depends on that particular person's baseline. Um, and so when we see incidents like you know what happened to Michelle Go in the subway just a, f- a couple of weeks ago, um, you, you see an individual who clearly had a history of. Um, violence and, and, and hospitalization. I mean, he really checked both boxes, both doors that get you into Kendra's law. Um, he, 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 he pushes right through. So, um, you know, he, that instant and many others that we have seen in the news in recent years really give me reason to wonder whether all is being done to ensure that everybody out there who meets these criteria is being identified and, and, and made subject to the law. You mentioned Simon Marshall, who you spent a fair amount of time writing about in your op-ed for the Daily News, uh, which if people haven't read, I'm going to link to on uh, my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Fan. This is the mentally ill man that was responsible for this uh, horrible uh, subway death. In spite of his history, he was still in a position to push her onto uh, onto the subway tracks. It, where is the hesitance in implementing uh, Kendra's law? Is it on the part of police? Is it on the part of judges, prosecutors, family members, policymakers? Who is being reluctant to use it from what you, you know, can tell? Yeah, I, I don't know that it's hesitance or reluctance so much as uh, inertia. <laughs> it just the, the system not responding at the moments it has this, this opportunity to identify an individual. I think it's just you know, people slipping through the cracks more than anybody making a, a, an ideological decision that, no, this person should not should not uh, be part of this program. Uh, I think we're just missing uh, opportunities. You know, every time a person is discharged from a hospital where they, they, they wound up in that hospital because they didn't engage with their treatment, or every time a person is released from uh, a jail um, w- when they wound up in jail because they didn't engage with treatment, that is an opportunity to identify someone who meets the criteria for Kendra's Law, what we call AOT, Assisted Outpatient Treatment. And um, it's clear to me that not every hospital in the city, uh, not every jail in the city is is uh, taking advantage of those opportunities upon discharging folks to analyze whether that person meets the criteria and, and make sure they become part of the program if they do. And so I really think the answer and the solution is going to be just in terms of putting 
procedures and protocols in place to make sure all these folks get evaluated at these junctures where they're being discharged from these hospitalizations and arrests. Is it difficult to navigate concerns that some people might have about civil rights? Let's say I'm uh, schizophrenic and I don't want to take my medication. Is it difficult for you or anybody to force me to take my medication? Well, it, it's appropriately difficult. You know, the law is, is, is designed to ensure that we're not going to impose this lightly. Uh, there are a certain uh, a number of things that have to be proven in court to establish that a person meets the criteria. Uh, this evidence has to be presented to a judge and proven by clear and convincing evidence, which is a pretty high evidentiary standard in a civil case. And, uh, of course, the person gets counsel. And they have an opportunity to uh, challenge the evidence that's presented, even present their own expert witness. If they have a psychiatrist that says, no, they don't meet these criteria, the person gets that opportunity. Uh, And so, you know, they get their day in court. And that's how we ensure that we're not going to trample over anybody's rights. And that's certainly an important part of how this works. Here in New York, uh, there was a lot of attention paid during the de Blasio administration to something called Thrive NYC. Now, this program has been... Um, it's become wildly unpopular, so much so that uh, Eric Adams, when he talked about his recent mental health initiative, he made a point of not calling it Thrive and uh, calling it something different and saying formerly known as Thrive New York City. What was the problem with Mayor de Blasio and Shirlane McRae's uh, Thrive New York City program? Why did it fail to address people like Simon Marshall before they were in a position to throw someone onto the subway? Yeah, because it focused on on a whole different set of issues. You know, they they announced their goal with that uh, set of programs as uh, protecting the mental health of all New Yorkers, as if all the mental health struggles that that, that any of us may go through over the course of our lives are somehow interconnected and have something to do with what people with really severe mental illness are going through. Um, And many of those 54 programs that were in that initial Thrive NYC package were uh, related to things that, you know, people having stress and anxiety over COVID or crime victims feeling unsafe about walking down the street. Serious issues, not anything I would say we shouldn't find some room to deal with in in, in a, a big city government, Um, but really not related to the problem of people with severe mental illness, that is those who are totally disconnected from reality, um, who uh, have a need to be receiving treatment in in order to to be safe to themselves and safe to the rest of us. So the emphasis on Thrive was improving everybody's mental health, uh, including if you have anxiety, if you're stressed out, uh, you're nervous about COVID, you're nervous about uh, too much crime in the city of New York. And it was not an emphasis on the two or three percent of people that are violently schizophrenic and may not be taking their medication. That's right. And there were some programs in there that are good for people with severe mental illness. I don't want to paint with too broad a brush. But uh, as you say, the emphasis was in the wrong place. And even the programs that did deal with severe mental illness were avoiding the you know unpleasant reality that some of that times that treatment that we offer to people has to be made available on an involuntary basis because folks don't always recognize their own need for treatment. And without that involuntary aspect of it in the mix, um, you're just not going to reach the, the people who we need to be the most concerned about. You refer to the fact that we might not always recognize our own need for treatment. 
a lot of the people that do recognize that are the family members of the seriously mentally ill. Do family members need greater tools in the legal toolbox to get their family members help, or are those are those uh, functions already in place? Oh, I think there are a couple of things that we could really do to to, to make life easier for these families that, that go through hell. Um, for one thing, we ought to interpret our laws on, on hospitalizing people more compassionately. Uh, people are often told that they can't get their loved ones uh, involuntary care when they desperately need it unless they are dangerous to themselves or others. And the way that tends to be interpreted is the person has to be violent or suicidal or doing something outrageously dangerous like walking into traffic or trying to fly off the top of a building. Um, if you're not doing any, if you're not checking any of those boxes, you are often not considered to be a danger to yourself or others. And so families are told, uh, you know, we just have to wait till he does something that, that proves that he is violent or suicidal or, or, or going to die imminently. And uh, while we're waiting around for that to happen, the person is getting sicker and sicker. If we would recognize that a person is dangerous to themselves if they can't meet their basic survival needs, right, if they can't protect their brain from the damage that it, that, that it uh, undergoes when treatment is withheld day after day and that person gets sicker and sicker and their, their prospects for recovery get lower because of the actual damage to the brain that's taking place, that's a real way of being a danger to yourself. And if, if, if the law were to recognize that, and I think we really could recognize it in terms of the way the law is written, it's really just more about the interpretation. And it's exacerbated by the fact that there aren't really enough beds to, to, to get care for everybody who needs it. Um, but, but families would get a lot more relief from the system if the law were interpreted more compassionately. So that's one big part of it. Another thing I'll say is that families really um, go through hell with trying to get information. Uh, from the treatment system about their loved one because of the interpretation of some of the health privacy laws. Uh, and, you know, it's understandable why doctors are sometimes reluctant to uh, disclose to families how their loved one is doing when, the, when, the, when the, sure. the mentally ill person doesn't want that information released. You know, there are laws that, that, that protect that information, but these laws get interpreted so extremely because these hospitals are so worried about getting sued that you have family members who can't even give information themselves to, to the doctor, right? They're told, well, I can't have a conversation with you, which includes, I can't even listen to what you have to tell me about your loved one, which might actually help me provide care to them. Uh, and, you know, there's also an exception in the law when it's in the person's best interest that the doctor truly believes it's in the best interest of the individual to have that information revealed to the family member. There are allowances for that to happen. And, you know, that's very rarely invoked. So, uh, the law is definitely not uh, really on the side of, of families the way it ought to be. Uh, final question, and I could talk with you all day. I'm just uh, way late here, and I hope you'll come back. But are there other cities that do this well, whether it's the implementation of Kendra's Law or something like Kendra's Law? Is there any city or state that you'd point to as a model for dealing with the seriously mentally ill? You know, there are a lot of cities who do certain things well. There's certainly some models out there. In terms of AOT, um, I think the city of San Antonio does a wonderful job with that. They have a, a, a really 
great approach to it, very different than New York's and where the judge is really kind of involved in motivating and inspiring the person, something I think we could do a lot more of in New York. Uh, the city of Tucson, Arizona, does a, a much better job th- than we do in New York in terms of um, responding to crisis and making sure that uh, you have mental health professionals on the front line of, uh, of situations that, that take place in the community so that we can de-escalate those situations and not always turn them into criminal events. Uh, so, yeah, I do think there are lots of lessons that can be learned out there from some Brian, of that, that uh, we're going to have to end it there. Thank you for the time this morning, and uh, I hope we can chat again soon. My pleasure. I'd love to come That's back. That's Brian Stetton. He's the policy director of the Treatment Advocacy Center. If you want to read this op-ed, I found it to be right on the money. You can go to my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Fan. If you want to call in and comment on any portion of our discussion, give me a call now, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Straight ahead. WABC. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Moreno, 77 WABC. This is the other side of midnight where uh, we prove every day that what Gloria Stefan said was right, that eventually by hook or by crook, the rhythm is going to get you. 800-848-9222. Take your calls in just a minute. We're monitoring a number of stories nationally, internationally, locally. Uh, an off-duty police officer, for instance, was shot in Queens last night. Police say he was in his personal vehicle, stopped at a traffic light when two male suspects approached the vehicle on foot and tapped on the driver's side window with a gun. So, uh, I mean, uh, it's crazy that this is going on in the streets of our city as we're still mourning Officer Mora and uh, Officer Rivera. Going to get to your calls in just a minute. I do want to remind you, I got an email here from Neil who was talking about my friend Vinny who's buying his daughter a Bitcoin. He writes, some friend buying Bitcoin and not patronizing your sponsor to buy gold for inflation. Let me be very clear. When you are making a decision to invest in gold or silver, you're not doing me a favor. This You're doing yourself a favor. Gold and silver are hedges against inflation. The reason that we're telling you about legacy precious metals is because inflation is out of control. Inflation is at a higher rate than it's been in 40 years. So the question is, what do you want to happen to your money? Do you want it to evaporate into the ether? Or do you want to actually be able to buy things with it? If the answer is the latter, if you want to buy things, then talk to Legacy Precious Metals. They're going to show you what the best strategy for investing in gold and silver is for you. And they don't have a vested interest. I mean, obviously, they're in the gold business. They'd like you to invest in gold. But they'll analyze your portfolio and help you work through some strategies that work for you. Give them a call. Write this number down, please. 866-932-0635. That's 866-932-0635. You can also find them online at LegacyPMInvestments.com. That's LegacyPMInvestments.com. 
Don't let inflation get you the way the rhythm does uh, once you're listening to that song. Hey, we have uh, no guest next hour, so we're going to have plenty of time to take your calls. If you want to comment on anything we've discussed thus far, you're welcome to give me a call at 800-848-9222. We're going to talk cryptocurrency coming up at 3.30. And look, it's a shock, I know, but Frank Morano was right again. I'll tell you why in just a moment. This is the other side of midnight. Until next hour, in the words of the great Bob Barker, make sure you help control the pet population and have your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Tomorrow, everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. It's no secret that I was and am a big critic of Andrew Cuomo. Okay? I was a critic of his from the time that he was attorney general. I was a critic of his from the time he ran for governor for the first time in 2002. No, I was a critic of his before that even. I was a critic of his from his time in the Clinton administration, and I believe, as as HUD secretary, he helped precipitate the subprime mortgage disaster. I realize I'm oversimplifying a bit, and there were a multitude of factors, but I believe Andrew Cuomo played a significant role in that. But there, uh, so the point is, I'm not a Cuomo fan, not in the least. I thought, as governor, while he did some interesting things and some good things, by and large. He was a tremendous failure as governor, as evidenced by the fact that a whole bunch of people moved out of the state of New York at, by, at, during the time that he was governor. And the thing that he became a uh, celebrity for, winning an Emmy Award, getting to go on Howard Stern, uh, getting uh, multi-million dollar book deals, the COVID crisis, I think he terribly mishandled. I think he was wrong almost every step of the way. He went on television and sounded great, great. But he also terribly misjudged the nursing home situation. And I believe cost a lot of people their lives. And I know Assemblyman Ron Kim got into that with uh, Bernie and Sid yesterday. However, I have always I always try to be fair, whether I like people, whether I don't like people, whether I agree with people, whether I disagree with people whether I think people are the best or the worst, I always try to be fair and intellectually honest. And around the time that all these Andrew Cuomo sexual misconduct allegations came out, I said, that dog don't hunt. I said, this case is weak. Then you look at the report from the Attorney General, Letitia James, and it's terrible. It's a very weak case. So I said so at the time. And I said when there was a criminal complaint filed in Albany County for one of the people that Andrew Cuomo supposedly sexually assaulted, I said this is a very weak case. This will never end up in a conviction. And although it rarely happens, yes, indeed, I was right. See, I told you so. Thank you, Rush Limbaugh. Yes, Now, finally, the news comes this week that the last sex crime inquiry into Andrew Cuomo has been dropped. 
there was insufficient evidence to charge Cuomo, the former governor of New York, with a crime in Oswego County. That means that of all the jurisdictions that have looked into Andrew Cuomo's supposed misdeeds, all five inquiries, not one could find enough evidence to charge him with a crime. We're not talking conviction. We're just talking enough evidence to charge him with a crime. And these are DAs, especially in Westchester, where Miriam Roca has never met a headline that she doesn't want to chase after. These are DAs that live for publicity. They would love to have brought a case that there was any chance of getting a conviction in against the former governor. The last of five criminal investigations into Andrew Cuomo's sexual misconduct ended Monday with the Oswego County D.A. joining his peers in concluding that there were that there were no sufficient legal grounds to bring these charges. The D.A. Gregory Oaks said in a statement that his decision was not a reflection on the woman who had come forward or how the harmful acts she experienced were. Oaks' reasoning mirrored similar language used by the prosecutors in Albany, Westchester, and Nassau, who opened inquiries into separate allegations but declined to prosecute. Now, if you're Letitia James, you've really got to be ashamed of yourself. I mean, this is a person who put out this report that drove Andrew Cuomo from office, not for the nursing home scandal, not for concealing the nursing home scandal, not for lying about this nursing home scandal, but for what she said were crimes. Now, these inquiries conducted by the state attorney general and the state assembly supposedly found that the allegations of sexual harassment or misconduct by multiple women were credible, not credible enough to charge him with a crime. As, and Richard, as a party, a spokesperson for Andrew Cuomo, I hate parroting the words of a spokesperson for Andrew Cuomo, but this is what as a party said yesterday. As now five DAs have verified, none of the accusations in Tish James' fraud of a report have stood up to any level of real scrutiny. As we've said since the beginning, the truth will come out. He's exactly right, and I hate to say that. I don't know that you – right now, I just I just choked on my own bile a little bit as I had to say, Rich as a party is absolutely right. But the fact is he is. Letitia James put out this sham of a report to destroy Andrew Cuomo's political career. And there were no crimes, at least no crimes that there was any evidence of spelled out in this report. And yet she got these two uh, prosecutors. And I, I really, those of you that have been through the criminal justice system know that the old adage from Judge Saul Walkler is true, that you can get a grand jury to indict a ham sandwich. I served on a grand jury. Uh, this is seven, eight years ago. They'll indict anybody. My, uh, They just basically will indict anybody that the prosecutor asks them to. And yet there was not sufficient evidence in any of these counties with any of these supposed 11 women to charge Andrew Cuomo with a crime. So the question I want to ask you at 800-848-WABC is what's it all about, Alfie? Why did Tish James put out this report, which, look, she's a lawyer. 
Why did she put out this report put together by June Kim, a former acting U.S. attorney, knowing that it was so weak? June Kim had to know it was weak. Tish James had to know it was weak. She had to know, one, what the result would be, that Andrew Cuomo would leave office, and two, she had to know that there was going to be no convictions, unless she's not nearly as intelligent of a prosecutor as I think she is. She had to know that this was baloney. Why'd she do it? What do you think the real motivation is here? 800-848-WABC. Initially, it was clear that at least a part of the motivation was her running for governor. But she bowed out of that governor's race pretty quickly. So what was it all about? Was it now the theory I expressed early on was that the Democrats and and this is a little far fetched, but not that far fetched. The Democrats wanted to push Andrew Cuomo out over this because they didn't want him to go down for the nursing home scandal. Because if he went down for the nursing home scandal, then Governor Phil Murphy in New Jersey would have a lot of questions to answer as would a lot of other governors. So the reason I could see that happening, but Tish James is in no in no hurry to do any favors for the governor of New Jersey. So why would she do this? Was it about self-ambition or something else? Remember, she was a Cuomo ally. They ran together. And he was an early early supporter of hers. So why would she turn on him like this? What do you think this is all about? Or do you think all five of these DAs somehow erred in their decision not to bring charges? 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Now, I don't dare tell you this. Well, maybe I will. Okay. So I was I had dinner with a friend of mine last night. He's been a guest on the show before. His name's uh, Bruce Charrett. Great guy. He was Larry King's manager for years. We spoke when Larry King died. He was very close to Alan King, very close to Frank Sinatra. I've had him on the show multiple times, and I've always enjoyed our conversations together. So I asked him if he would come on with me tomorrow. He agreed. He's in in New York. He he does sort of a bi-coastal thing between New York and L.A. He agreed to come on tomorrow. And he said, you know what I think we can do? Because I think tomorrow we can actually have Frankie Valley call into your show while I'm on. So I said, really? That would be great. I mean, you think he'd do it? He said, let's call him. So he calls Frankie Valley with me. And sure enough, Frankie Valley readily accepted our invitation to be on this show tomorrow. So um, as of now, again, I'm hesitant to promote this too much because, you know, who knows what could happen but within a day. But uh, as of now, Frankie Valley has agreed to appear on this show tomorrow. So that should be pretty exciting. So if you have any suggestions for questions for Frankie Valley, uh, you can email me, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Since he's really coming on as a favor to Bruce, I sort of have to defer to Bruce at least a little bit in terms of the direction of the conversation. But the, trust me, there's going to be plenty of opportunities for me to get a few questions in there. 800-848-9222. You can comment on Andrew Cuomo or anything else that we've talked about. No guests for this hour, so we're going to have plenty of time 
to uh, to chat about a wide variety of things. And this is one of those days I have stacks of stuff that I want to get to, and we're going to try to do it. LQ is in the Bronx. Hello, LQ. Good morning, uh, Mr. Ron. How are you? Well, uh, I guess uh, if I'm being honest, I am planning on taking over the world. <laughs> well, uh, you're not the only one. Okay, um, I agree with you totally. Uh, uh, what you had just said is a smokescreen that um, Letitia, Letitia James, all of them knew that uh, this wasn't going to go anywhere and uh, for the, uh, the hide the, sm- uh, the nursing home issue, which could have definitely hurt Como more and probably the Murphy, other Murphys, and maybe even up to the president of the United States. Well, interesting, LQ. Do you think Andrew Cuomo is going to make a, a political comeback this year? Um, yeah, I think he will. Tr- he may try, but it, it's that nursing home thing. That's the thing that he he doesn't want to come up. That could hurt him. Interesting. Interesting. All right, well, we'll see what happens. Thank you for calling. Thank you for listening. 800-848-WABC. One open line if you want to jump on board. Laura here in Manhattan has been patiently holding. Hello, Laura. Hey, uh, Frank. Uh, you know, the the first story and the second story rolled in together beautifully. Um, the uh, driving while impaired and then uh, mental illness. Um, and that lovely lady that was talking, um, neuroleptics is a fancy word for these chemicals. So you watch a, uh, I'll try to make this really brief. You're watching a television and there's a lady and she's got a, a smiley face on one side of a car and uh, a record and a stick. And on the other side, you know, a sad face. And she goes into the doctor's office and they say, well, add this medication. And then she leaves, and she's got the smiley face. Uh, a lot of those medications, the very first thing, and I think you know this, that says, unless you were familiar, do not, you know, drive, operate machinery, you know, the same thing over and over. But how are we going to get to work? How are we going to get anywhere? You know, so if we need the medication, there's no transportation. If there's no transportation, which there isn't, I volunteered it once just as a solution once around prom time, you know, to put my number all over and offer to drive a local kids home. You know, if they felt that they should leave their cars, I got nowhere. They said I was going to be legally responsible. It was their parents. It just turned into a nightmare. So I applaud you for bringing up these subjects, and then, and I don't mean to be rude, but the lady that just jumped out of the window, she left work. Everybody thought she was fine, Miss USA. And um, not only is she dead, but by the grace of God, uh, and I don't mean this to be rude, you know, somebody wasn't walking underneath the window. Yeah, uh, well, thank you for the call, Laura. To your point, um, the fact that this supermodel uh, could kill herself, and uh, it goes to show you that a lot of times it seems like everybody's, like somebody is doing just fine when in actuality they're not. They're suffering. So uh, I think that is a fine, fine point. 800-848-WABC. Larry is in Brooklyn. Hello, Larry. Yeah, hi, Frank. I'd like to comment on the mental illness interview with the uh, assistant attorney general. 
You know, I think I think it, I don't mean to be arrogant, okay, but I think it illustrates the hazards of pseudo intellectual banter because both of you miss the actual cause of the problem why violent people are in the subway, and it has to do with one category of people, and only, and that is the psychiatrists themselves. And I'll tell you why because psychiatrists are notably cowardly people. First of all, they don't want they're the ones that are are obligated to implement Kendra's law. They will not saddle a person they think is dangerous to them with this obligation because it's a very, very uh, restricting thing and people don't like it. So they're afraid if somebody is genuinely dangerous, they're afraid for their own safety that this person will come back and try to hurt them if they in fact do that. They will more likely saddle a harmless individual, for example, I have a friend that was under Kendra's law for maybe five years. He, he is incapable of doing any act of violence. He only talks. He said, like, if, I, if I'm the Messiah and I have to kill out the world, oh, he goes right to the hospital under Kendra's law. Why? Because they're not afraid of him. But if you get a guy that's in, in the hospital and it says, I'm going to break out of this damn place if they don't let me out, believe me, he's going out the next so you, You're saying the people that really are a threat – that the folks that are in a position to force that person to take their medication under Kendra's law, no one's going to do that because they realize that person is potentially violent. Not no one. The psychiatrist won't do it. If it's going to be if it if it's going to be done effectively, it has to be done by other than one person who is afraid, who is a cowardly individual, and it has to be done by a team. And such as the person knows that it's not being implemented by his doctor. That's the whole point. All right. Thank you, Larry. I'm glad I stuck with that call. I mean, Larry had an interesting way of beginning that call by insulting me and insulting the guest by uh, saying that we were guilty of pseudo-intellectual banter. But he raised some good points. I think he's a little too tough on the uh, psychiatrists. I know a lot of psychiatrists who do some great work and are seriously committed to the the improved mental health of their patients and making sure that if somebody's a violent schizophrenic, that they get their medication. So I think you've been a little too tough there, but it's, it's a perspective that uh, I'm glad we got to hear. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Russell is in White Plains. Hello, Russell. Hi, Frank. I think Larry's point was that no psychiatrist wants to be identified as the one yeah, I understood. One, I understood his point. Right, a committee. Uh, but to Cuomo, you know, he created a hostile workplace. He was unfit to be governor. It's like Al Capone. And he was never an ally of Tish James. He backed Tish James to keep Zephyr Teachout away from him. So Tish James owed him nothing. She did us all a big favor. But what I want to talk about, Frank, is all of a sudden, uh, Jacqueline called scapegoating seniors. Now, I agree, some seniors shouldn't drive, but is there a greater percentage of seniors driving? No. And I tell you, marijuana helps people's driving. What's going on? It's like Corey said, video game players are creeping in to the traffic. They're increasing all the time. And in fact, they're also driving 18-wheeler trucks because there's a, there's a shortage of truck drivers. So that's what's going on. Lemmings in traffic will mimic other bad drivers. And can I give you real quick the solution, Frank? I'm ready. Real quick. Okay. Uh, all modern cars have GPS location, black box, and all that. Police could set up mobile surveillance, surveillance 
uh, over a one-mile stretch of roadway, it would be intermittent. I'm not for the surveillance state, but they could identify each car and the reckless driving, no room between cars, speeding, tailgating. They follow each other in traffic. These people are committing attempted manslaughter on the rest of us. They should be taken off the road, and the fines should be progressive. People with a lot of money, they don't care about paying fines, Frank. That's what goes on. And the last thing about pushing on the subways, put up partition walls on the platforms. That'll correct the problem. Look, uh, I am for those partition walls, uh, and uh, we've discussed this on the show. I think that would go – that would help. I think it would help not only in terms of mitigating the issues of – this horrible situation involving um, this mentally ill gentleman, Simon Marshall, who pushed Michelle Go onto the subway tracks. But I think it would mitigate accidents. I think it might even potentially mitigate suicides, uh, people that jump onto the subway tracks. But we'll see what happens. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Momentarily, we have an update on the Girl Scout cookie story that we brought to your attention Yesterday, Molly has been exhaustively researching this story for the last 23 hours. She hasn't slept. And it's really been terrible to watch. And now she has a definitive answer as to why Samoas are now caramel delights. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. WABC. Hey, Polk City, here. 40 days up to 40 pounds. Say it with me. 40 days up to 40 pounds with NJ Diet. It only takes 40 days to lose 20 to 40 plus pounds. That's my guy, Arthur Turovitz. Since NJ Diet is a contractually guaranteed money back program, you have absolutely nothing to worry about. NJ Diet is 100% tailored to you by using bioenergetically personalized supplements based on your hair, saliva, and blood work. Then, NJ Diet uses DNA testing to create your ideal diet plan and workout regimen. going to help you keep the weight off for the rest of your life. 40 days up to 40 pounds can be a real thing, unlike other weight loss systems. NJ Diet is all natural. No shots, no hormones, no prepackaged foods, and no surgery. With offices throughout the tri-state area or from home with live online video consultations. Start your new year off right at... And call NJ Diet today, 855-5NJ-DIET, or go to NJDiet.com. That's NJDiet.com, 40 days, up to 40 pounds with NJ Diet. Are you or someone you know caring for someone with dementia? Life is busy and filled with responsibilities. Adding to this can be stressful and overwhelming. The Joan and Alan Bernicow JCC of Staten Island's Caregiver Support Center offers services and support to people caring for loved ones with dementia. To people caring for a loved one with dementia. Their staff is compassionate, caring, and trained to help families who feel worried and unprepared in the face of a dementia diagnosis. Free services include short-term in-house care, supplies, support groups, and assistance coordinating care for your loved one. The JCC also offers joint programs for caregivers and their loved ones to do together. For more information, call 718-475-5287. Go to SIJCC.org. Radio 77 WABC. 77 WABC, where the action is. We are New York on New York's Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. 
Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Well, there's two things that I really dislike. One is political correctness that destroys uh, vaunted and celebrated American institutions. The second is uh, getting people worked up into a frenzy for no reason when I'm wrong about uh, political correctness. So if you weren't listening to the show yesterday, I uh, I described a situation in which my cousin sold my wife some Girl Scout cookies. And all these Girl Scout cookies that everybody's been purchasing for years, they all look the same, they all taste the same, but except for Thin Mints, they all had new names. And I speculated that it was all to give cover to the name change for the Samoa. The Samoa cookie is quite delicious. We have a box of them. Same ingredients, they look like Samoas, they taste like Samoas. They're now called Caramel Delights. They changed a bunch of other names, and they're all exactly the same cookie. So I was talking about this, and I did a little research on my own, and some people are saying that, no, they didn't change the name, that they're still able to get Samoas. And we had a nice uh, call from a, a Girl Scout troop leader yesterday. So that was clearly not a problem that we were going to solve in the allotted time for yesterday's program. So Molly, our producer, has been painstakingly working on this for the last day. She's got some Girl Scout experience herself, so we tasked her with getting to the bottom of this. Molly, what did you come up with? So I think I think we you, you said working people into a frenzy before. I think we might have been very wrong about this because it seems that the history of Girl Scout cookies is the reason that we're in the situation we're in now. They did not start as a, a centralized unit. It started out as a recipe um, shared in a Girl Scout publication. So it says, according to Vox's reporting, um, that there have been many, many bakeries. Right now, we're existing with two. There's ABC Bakers and Little Brownie Bakers. Um, those are the two bakeries in the United States now. But so Girl Scouts can purchase from only those two bakeries? Yes. that That is only those two bakeries produce the cookies in the box, the, the Girl Scout branding. Um, I have so much paper in front of me. I'm trying to find the actual uh, what I'm looking for. Um, but so it has been... It's it's literally there's it's gotten from the point where there were hundreds of bakeries. It was it was localized um, and there were literally hundreds down in the 70s. They uh, I believe it was like 25. They uh, filed it down to um, and eventually by 1990, it was uh, two two bakeries. Um, and so the issue with the naming has to do with it's all licensing. Um it has nothing to do with political correctness. It's just that Little Brownie Bakers is a, 
a piece of the Girl Scout organization or um, they're they're associated with the, the Girl Scouts in a way that ABC is not. So they don't get to use brand names. And which is the brand name? Is the brand name Samoa's or is the brand Samoa's. name Caramel Delights? Yes. So Caramel Delights is a generic name. Samoa's is the Girl Scout name. So you can still get Samoa's on your box. Um, but only if it comes from the little. But only br- if it comes from Little Brownie Bakers, but, which no. is which I I actually uh, there there's a lot of hype around the the division because it's getting a lot more attention this year because of the the um because of the Samoa's uh, people are very upset about that one in particular. Um, but this has always been an issue where the cookies are different and. Uh, the one, the first cookie to bring up this divide was the the Savannah Smiles, which is the lemon cookie, mm. which is completely different between the two companies. So what you said before uh, was a little incorrect that we're getting the same cookies because we're definitely not getting the but same. But the cookies. caramel delight is the Samoa. That one is the same. But it t- it does taste different. There are no, people that I, I, it doesn't though to me anyway. I mean, I have an untrained tongue. But it tastes exactly the same. I would hate uh, to drink wine with you, Frank. <laughs> um, but it is it is in shape different. The um, it is in shape the same. It is in the recipe completely on the same because the recipes are protected. Um, I. It's interesting that they're choosing to continue with the uh, split bakery uh, production. So method. both of these bakeries are official sellers to the Girl Scouts. Yes, they're both they're both licensed to sell to the Girl Scouts. Because it says on the box Girl Scouts. It's got the logo and everything on the box that we have. Now, has has it always been called Caramel Delight from ABC Bakery or did they change the name uh, at some point to Caramel Delight? Has that always been the alternative to Samoa's? Uh, that I would I wouldn't know that one I wasn't I'm not able to find that in my research where the history of the specific names to specific cookies are coming from but really all all I've been able to find is that it's um it it's has it has the name has nothing to do with with um really anything it kind of seems like it was picked out of nowhere because I can't find any history on the name Samoa itself like where it came mm-hmm. from why they decided to call it that in the first place. Um, and it's interesting because I think people are most, it, it, the Samoa is the one that we're focused on. People are most upset about the tag along and that being called the peanut butter patty now because well, it's boring. But but so was it always called the peanut butter patty no. at this other bakery? No, it was, it was called the tag along. Oh, it was the tag along. Yeah. So there has been a name change. There has been a name change. And oh, so you're at, I see, you're asking for the reason for the name change. You well, know, and when and when when the names were changed? Filing through my papers. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, we'll do. We'll 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 let you continue your research. And yeah, then... I was a little. I was a little caught off guard to come in here. I was I was working on some other things, but um. Yeah. No, I'll I'll do but it more goes, research. It goes but... back. It goes back. Uh, this is not a recent. This thing. is not a recent thing. This is not unique to the Samoa, um, and it is it is largely 
a licensing issue. Why they picked Caramel Delight, I couldn't tell you, but it was it was supposed to be generic. It's something that's not branded. And in terms of the Thin Mint, why are they both able to sell cookies that are both called Thin Mint? I need I need to do more research. Clearly, I um the Thin Mint one. The thin there are so many cookies, and the story is is different with each one. Um, but the Thin Mint uh, cookie. The thin All right, we'll, we'll let you we'll, we'll let you work on this a little I'm bit so more, sorry, and that's but, okay. We'll, 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 but it's not. It has nothing to do with uh, political correctness. No, it has nothing to do. with And it's been called. Um, it's it was not recently renamed Samoa to Caramel Delight. It's been Caramel Delight at this one bakery for a number of years. Seemingly so. Okay, and seemingly and so. Do you know if there's geographic differences? Like if one state gets. From ABC and one state gets from Little Brown Bakery. Well, I know, so I know New Jersey is ABC, w- which is the home of the uh, Carmel, Carmel Delight. Delight. Interesting. Yes, so right. I, I I know it, it has to. It's um, it's an East Coast West Coast thing. I see. So in the um, East Coast, so we buy from ABC. We are unfortunately, uh, we have to get the generic stuff. Although the on lady, the, East Coast. the lady in Manhattan yesterday said she's got Samoas. I mean, she could have been lying. It's very possible. We know is she buying of... from a Girl Scout? Uh... Yeah, she's a Girl Scout troop leader. Is... Oh, yeah. so these are her own Girl Scouts. Yeah, uh, that's although, interesting because yeah, it... she could have been lying. We have a lot of people lying about whether or not they're receiving yeah, hats, hats or yeah. not. So, all right. Well, thank you for your work on this, Molly, and uh, we will continue our investigative series in the truth behind the names of Girl Scout cookies. Thank you, Molly. Thank you. Thank you. Eight hundred eight four eight WABC. If you want to comment. That's 800-848-9222. In the meantime, uh, yesterday was uh, Chinese New Year, a Lunar New Year, at, here at the uh, the radio station. And um, we saw a lot of um, interesting programming on the radio station. It was great. I love Lunar New Year. I love uh, Chinatown and the Chinese culture and everything about it. I'll never forget one of my favorite, uh, you know, the one of my favorite days with the Lunar New Year was um, not one of my favorites, but it was in I want to say February of two thousand eight, and I was still hanging around in the morning, even though I was producing the morning show, Curtis and Kuby, and we'd gotten replaced by Imus in the morning, so I was working with Curtis from five to six a.m. And then um, there wasn't really – I didn't really have that much to do after 6 a.m. I would be kind of a, a catch-all for anybody that needed help. I would help the IMIS show. I would help the program director, Phil Boyce. I would do other things. But I said, wouldn't it be nice if we made a field trip to Chinatown to get Chinese food for everybody? So George Weber, the morning news anchor at the time, and I, who's unfortunately passed away, uh, he and I – made a field trip from Midtown to Chinatown to get Chinese food for the whole staff. Big, you know, everybody that's on the floor. And we took everyone's order. And we wrote down what everybody wanted. We go down to Chinatown, and of course, I don't know why I didn't realize this, but all the great Chinese restaurants were closed in the morning because of Lunar New Year. So we finally found a place that was open and lo and behold, if you're the only place that's open in Chinatown on Lunar New Year, then you're not the best, <laughs> okay? A lot of the top-tier places 
close. So um, we ended up stumbling into this place called the Big Wong, which I believe is still there. And we got uh, we got Chinese food for everybody, and we came back, and it was uh, we had a good time. We were still able to celebrate the Lunar New Year, but we didn't get to go to any of the um, any of the Chinese restaurants that we that we went to. There are so many great restaurants in Chinatown, and they only seem to be expanding. I mean, you got uh, certainly Wohop, and then you have the other Wohop. There's Wohop at 17 Mott Street. Wohop's got a great reputation. And I go to I've gone to Wohop thousands of times. That's not an exaggeration. Thousands of times, and I would go to Wohop every day. My friend Vic and I we were obsessed with Wohop. We'd go there every day. But it, basically, Wohop is like a Chinese diner. The food is good. It's it's pretty good. But the thing that makes Wohop so great is the atmosphere. They're open twenty four hours, so you can go there when you're listening to the other side of midnight at two thirty in the morning. And you've had a couple of pops. You can go down to Chinatown. Not this week, because at least back in my day when I was going there a lot, they'd always be closed for Chinese New Year. But uh, it was the atmosphere more so than the food. But then there's an upstairs Wohop, 15 Mott Street. And that place usually would stay open, at least for dinner during, um, you know, during uh, Chinese New Year. But you have so many great places. 69 Baird is just terrific. Um, you have... Uh, the Peking Duck House is is terrific. The Hop Key, right up the block from uh, Wohop. Uh, you have uh, a whole bunch of great places uh, over there. I, I almost don't even want to mention all the other places that you can go to. Uh, but it all depends on what you want. Some places specialize in, in uh, the soup dumplings. Some places specialize in dim sum. Some places specialize in vegetarian fare. Some places specialize in uh, in seafood. There's so many great places there, honestly. All right, 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on anything we've covered thus far. 1-800-848-WABC. You know, yesterday, maybe it was the day before. What is today? Wednesday? Monday. I had told you about a film that I saw over the weekend, um, which was kind of silly. And that was the most recent film that I had seen, so it was most on my mind. But then I was driving home. And I was listening to Sid Rosenberg give a review to another film that I had seen over the weekend, and I forgot to mention it. It was called The Tender Bar, and it's already gotten a lot of Oscar buzz. And it's directed, actually, by George Clooney. George Clooney is not in the film, but it was produced and directed by George Clooney. It stars uh, Ben Affleck, and it's based on um, a memoir by J.R. Moringer. And it's it basically recounts his life of growing up on Long Island. Uh, in terms of stars, Ben Affleck is the biggest name. And, oh, Christopher Lloyd is in it as well in a supporting role. I really liked it. Uh, I don't think I loved it the way my wife did. As soon as we finished watching it, she said, I just love that. I didn't feel that way. I thought it was good. I thought it was well done. Um, but, you know, I could live the rest of my life without ever seeing it again. A film that I love, I want to see repeatedly. I didn't get that with The Tender Bar. Sid, I was listening go on and on about how much he loved this film. I liked it. My wife loved it. Sid loved it. But it is uh, it is well done. And a little bit of radio trivia. There is a character in the film that's a radio DJ. He's the father of the main character. That, in real life, 
because this is a real fella, J.R. Moringer, and he did grow up on Long Island. In real life, his father was a radio DJ here in New York that went by the name of Johnny Michaels. Some of you might remember Johnny Michaels. He used to be on WOR-FM, and he was sort of a... He had some talk experience, although most of his talk radio experience was in other other markets like North Carolina. Uh, but uh, I, I thought it was a good movie, and it's getting a lot of Oscar buzz. So if you want to, the, the I think the Oscar nominations are coming out in six days. If you want to start catching up on what films are um, Oscar worthy, this is probably going to get some nominations. It's called The Tender Bar. But yeah, uh, those of you that are radio fans will remember. Johnny Michaels, who was a staple on WORFM and on uh, 660 WFAN as well. Hey, let me also give a plug to the WABC radio store. I'm going to put on uh, social media on uh, my Facebook page at Facebook.com slash MoranoFan. That's Facebook.com slash M-O-R-A-N-O-Fan. The... Shirts that my mom ordered for the other side of midnight have arrived. And my mother sent me this photo of her dog, Watson, and her longtime companion, Jim, wearing the brand new other side of midnight T-shirts, which, by the way, the logo was at least in part uh, based on a truck stop design but that was designed by uh, by our producer Molly. So I'm gonna put this. They're very stylish. I haven't gotten my shirts yet, but these shirts look great. I'm gonna put this on the Facebook right now, and uh, you could ch- check it out. Facebook.com/slash Morano Fan. That's uh, Facebook.com/slash Morano Fan. You could see Jim and my dog Watson, or well, my mom's dog. Technically, he's my dog brother. But um, these are great shirts, and if you want one, you can go to WABCRadioStore.com. That's WABCRadioStore.com, and you can uh, purchase one of these shirts. You can also get a mug or any of the other great uh, merchandise for the other side of Midnight. So when you go there, if you uh, type in Morano or if you search the other side of Midnight, you'll see all sorts of great stuff. This is really cool stuff. It's not cheap or chintzy at all, uh, but you could see the photo of um, my mother's longtime companion and her dog wearing these shirts. It's really cool. And if you want to buy one yourself, go to WABCRadioStore.com. And I believe that if you order and use the discount code FRANK15, you will still be able to get a 15% discount, which is really neat as well. Uh, so it's great, great deal, great product, and uh, I definitely think you should check it out. 800-848-WABC. Let me say hello to Jeff in Jersey City. Hello, Jeff. Hello, Frank. Uh, a reference uh, to, to uh, someone you, you mentioned, Frankie Valley of one, and uh fantasy for me, if you could hook me up with an interview. I want to interview uh, Cousin Brucie and Tony Orlando uh, together for 60 minutes. I'd, lo- I'd love to do that. Um, but, uh, you know, I'll work maybe, on that. Maybe, maybe a fantasy, but, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're an influential guy. So, uh, I'm just going to, um, hold that in the back of my head, uh, <laughs> coming down to reality. Now, does he, does, um, you were talking about Sid's show in the morning, which I listen to often. And there's a young man on the, on the show, the morning show. 
and they talk about uh, the young fella, uh, his father's favorite singer is Johnny Maestro. And Sid laughs and said, no chance, it's Frank Sinatra. So here's a story that I, I, I got to tell you, a true story. A buddy of mine years ago in the music business wrote songs, wrote number one songs. He married a soul singer in the early 1960s who had number one hit rec- records. Definitely knows music, write music, write songs. Uh, one of the Beatles did his, one, one of his songs. Um, anyway, what he said to me, he, he, we're talking about music, and um, he, he was impressed. He's seen it all, you know. And he said to me, um, I said, well, my, my parents lo- uh, love Frank Sinatra. And he says, Frank Sinatra is not a singer. He's a stylist. And he said to me, Johnny Maestro is a singer. He could sing right here on the stoop without without any music behind him, just singing with his voice. And Johnny Maestro got little little recognition. I mean, he never made it to the uh, that that bogus uh, rock and roll hall of fame. I, I know cousin Brucey uh, likes um, Frank Frankie Maestro, and he covers uh, you know Spectrum from Doo-Wop. And yeah. I think you said something about Frankie Valley. And I, I would like to know his feeling or even um, some of the other guys. And they're not going to be around that much um, longer. Dion, Tony Orlando. What, what, what are their, their, uh, what is their assessment of um, Johnny Maestro? And again, this it's is a good a question. Yeah. Johnny Maestro and uh, the uh, Johnny Maestro, I think, is a phenomenal talent. Uh, I don't think that takes anything away from Frank Sinatra. You can like both. But Johnny Maestro and the Brooklyn Bridge, I mean, they have wonderful songs, uh, wonderful songs. And, uh, I mean, w- w- you know, uh, I don't think that you can – that that takes anything away from fandom of Frank Sinatra. I mean, you can like multiple singers, multiple groups. By the way, uh, I want to thank uh, – I believe it was Karen who wrote to me yesterday and suggested that um, – that uh, that she was a big fan of my musical tastes, including, and she thanked me for turning her on to Ed Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros. You're welcome, Karen. Uh, appreciate you listening. Appreciate your nice email. And if you ever want to email me, you can uh, do so at frank.morano at wabcradio.com. We do have a Facebook group, which is meant to be a discussion forum for the... Topics that are covered on the show for the guests that are covered on the show. And if you haven't yet joined it, I hope you will. Just search on Facebook, uh, Facebook doc, uh, you know, on Facebook, Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's M-O-R-A-N-O, Radio Fans and Haters. Or you could just type Facebook.com slash groups slash Radio Morano. But if you go to my main Facebook page, Facebook.com slash Morano Fan, that's where I post all the articles that we talk about on the show. That's where I post the podcast on a daily basis, and uh, that's where I post uh, a lot of the images we're talking about. Like, if you go there now, you'll see the image of Watson and Jim both wearing the new gear that we have, the new T-shirts from the WABCRadio.com store. And again, you can check that out at WABCRadioStore.com. Let me say hello to Rob in White Plains. Hello, Rob. Hello, Frank. Frank, you're colorfully petty, and you're very, very promiscuous. I, I'm petty, and talent. what was the second? What was the second adjective? Pernicious. You have to look at it's a word of per, the day. Pernicious. Pernicious. <laughs> that would mean you're, no, no. You're not wasting. Maybe you are wasting away. I might be. So, so spell, know, spell it for me. Stay at a restaurant. Yeah, thanks, Rob. Money. Thanks, Rob. Spell it for me. Listen, spell the word. 
Comicius? Yes. P-R-O-M-I-S-C-I-O-U-S, I believe. P-R... Pro. Promicious. Promicious. Not promiscuous, yes. but promicious. Well, you may be that as well, but don't let your wife find out. Oh, uh, you're very clever, Rob. So, uh, okay, so permissious, let me look up the results. Uh, having Thank or you, characterized sir. by many transient sexual, oh, oh no, that's promiscuous. Uh, permissious. We, we hang out at restaurants. I mean, what kind of an image are you presenting to the public? You hang out at restaurants. You talk about being drunk during the day. You, 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 you smoke, you pollute the room. I mean, what the hell kind of I person like are you? To yeah. guzzle uh, well, I, I, do you have any other suggestions for me, Rob, other than yeah, a better vocabulary? Yeah, I was a I was a I was a segment producer at Channel Eleven News back in nineteen seventies, and I saw their last concert as the Four Seasons before they were breaking up. Actually, it was a benefit for a doctor at Saddlebrook Hospital, and uh, his daughter Francine walked in and kissed him. She died in a car accident two weeks later. I have a question. I will, I wouldn't want to bring the interview down, but you might want to ask him. He, by the way, he had a son after married him and named him Franco. But um, what did her death, what impact did it have on his life? I've always wondered about that. That's not a bad, uh, that's not a bad co- question, Rob. Thank you. Again, uh, we should have done a Get At Frank hour today because uh, we, get, we have quite a few people throwing left hooks and right hooks. Maybe we'll do that tomorrow. What do we have planned for tomorrow? Well, we may have Frankie Valley and Bruce Sharrett here tomorrow, but... Uh, let me see. Hey, we have the AC report, but hey, we'll have time for a get at Frank. So if you have complaints about me or anything that I'm doing, save it for tomorrow. We'll call. Well, I mean, you can still call in now, but we'll do a specialized segment of gaff. Get at Frank. 800-848-WABC. Pete is on Staten Island. Hello, Pete. Good morning, Frank. Morning. You know, I always learned that if you don't have something nice to say, don't say nothing at all. When you last call it there, come on now. Give it a break. Now about with Frank Sinatra. I worked with Frank Sinatra. Frank Sinatra could sing and he could also talk a song. And most of the songs that's great that we love of Frank Sinatra are talked. And he had a talent for it. He would end the song like he was playing a trumpet, like that song when he would say, and I, and he would hold the note. And that was unique. I've never heard an artist in my 66 years that did that. And that's what made Frank special. Yeah, I, I, uh, I think you nailed it, Pete. I, I think he did have a way with not just words, but with sounds uh, that it was really sui generis. I don't think there's another singer that could take a syllable and have the kind of melisma that uh, that Sinatra does. Uh, thank you, Pete. 800-848-WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. We'll continue straight ahead. WABC. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. WABC, this is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Coming up next hour, we will delve into the exciting world of cryptocurrency. Our mayor wants to be known as the leading crypto 
mayor in America, the mayor of Miami says, no, 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 not you, me. Other mayors are using, are looking at Bitcoin and cryptocurrency as a way of stopping or at least reducing income inequality. So we're going to do our crypto panel coming up at 3.30. We have Simon Constable, one of my favorite financial commentators. He's going to be here. And we have uh, Drew Taylor. He is a crypto advocate. He is very bullish on crypto. And in fact, they call him the crypto cowboy. But we have the opportunity to hear from uh, a man who's very much a talk radio cowboy, Steve in Manhattan. Hello, Steve. All right, Big Frank. And first, I want to compliment Molly on that expose on Girl Scout cookies. Uh, Molly, excellent job. And if I if it was up to me, I would have just walked in that studio and threw a banana cream pie. You don't like banana cream pies, do you? But now I'm going to compliment you, Frank. You could be a game show host. You know that, right? I know you know that. Well, right? I, I would love to be a game show host. If you, I, you can I be. That. No, no, no. You can be if given the opportunity, definitely, because you have a personality trait where you can make – I don't care how many people in the room. You can make everybody feel like you were in kindergarten with them or in high school with them, and you have that person. I'm telling you, you would make it, and you look good on TV. You just have that look on television. Now, the thing with the Bitcoin and everything – uh, first of all, people should know that El Salvador, if you have Bitcoins, you could use it for any financial uh, transaction, whether you're buying coffee or something. And um, Venezuela also created their own uh, Bitcoin type of thing, calling it a Petro. I mean, if my financial advisor told me to invest in either one of those countries, I would tell them to jump out the window. Those prices fluctuate too much with Bitcoin. It's really not for the average person. I know people, you got to remember, folks, remember this line, American people are very trendy people. They always fall for that stuff. You cannot have the price of the, or your financial assets take a dive overnight. You're a billionaire in the morning and in the afternoon you're, you're right, broke. Right. Someone like the big cat can get involved in that because he's got that kind well, of money. Well, he, he's not a Go big ahead. Bitcoin person, John, uh, no. from what I've heard. No, I know he's not because he doesn't become a billionaire by giving his money away and taking those kind of big risks unless he knows what he's getting into. There's still an open field with this right now. The horizon is just coming up on it. And the thing with uh, Andrew Cuomo, I always said he should uh, you know, quit politics and fly out to Hollywood in his private Learjet. And he, he, in Hollywood, he would command $20 million a movie. He could play the heavy in any movie, that guy really like would step on you know step on it, Froggy. Let's get out of here. He would be perfect in Hollywood, that guy. And if you want, uh, if you want to have a gas night one night, get at Steve. There's a lot of callers <laughs> out there that don't like me. You could ha- anytime you want. Get ready for your ratings to go through the roof, go through the stratosphere. Wonderful. I appreciate that, Steve. Believe you me. All right. 800-848-WABC. You know, it's funny. I don't know what Andrew Cuomo is going to do this year. I don't see him running for governor. I think that, uh, look, we're going to know in a month. Uh, Petitions start circulating in a month. I don't see him running for governor. I could see him, especially in light of this latest district attorney, I could see him running for state attorney general against Letitia James. He's got $16 million or so, maybe a little less now because he's still paying staff to spend. I think he would be very formidable in a uh, in a statewide contest. Look, uh, two of the most important things in politics are name recognition and money. And right now he's got both. And not all that name recognition is positive, but uh, I don't know. It would not surprise me if he, um, I don't know, if he tried to make a run for statewide office this year. 
I am, you know, it's funny. There has not been a gubernatorial race in the last 24 years that I have not been involved with. And uh, I don't know what I'm going to do this year because I like Tom Swazi. I like Andrew Giuliani. And I don't know if other candidates are going to emerge. But the gubernatorial race is always so important because that's the race where the new political parties are determined. It used to be if you wanted to become a political party in New York, you had to get 50,000 votes for governor. Now, thanks to Andrew Cuomo, he made it so that it's 130,000. So, and it's not for four years you get ballot access. It's only two years. So we'll see what happens. But I have always been of the belief that we need a vibrant, multi-party democracy. So even though I really don't have the time, I started putting together a plan for the formation of a new party in New York. And we sort of laid the groundwork a little bit last year with Curtis Lee was run for mayor and, uh, you know, him running as the candidate of the independent party. And there was some thought about bringing it back this year. I was telling a friend of mine about this over the weekend as I was going through my my machinations. And he said, well, you know, you could do all that and it's going to take a lot of work and a lot of time. Or you could enjoy the 20 hours a week that you spend on the air and your two-month-old son and focus on your paying job and being a husband and a father. I may end up doing that, but it's tough to stay away. I'll tell you, there hasn't been a gubernatorial election. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Everyone, this is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. I don't know if you heard that story that um, Bob Brown just did, uh, but it's getting a lot of attention. All about this lawsuit with Brian Flores. Now, if you're not a football fan, stay with me. Uh, There was an issue in the NFL um, maybe about 20 years ago, close to 20 years ago, where they found that that they had a lot of black players, I think close to 70% of the players in the National Football League were black, And yet very few black coaches. So people wanted to sort of, and obviously no black owners at the time, anything like that. So they wanted to sort of rectify this situation. So how do you do that? So they instituted something called the Rooney Rule, where they said that for any new coaching, open coaching position, you have to interview a black coach or a black potential coach. Before you make your hire, the thinking being this would give more of an opportunity to prospective black coaches. Now, if you're mandating that people are going to have to interview a black coach or any type of person, could be an Asian coach, whatever, before you actually hire someone, what do you think is going to happen? A lot of these teams already have in mind who they want to hire be they black or white, and they're going to go through the motions. Well, it looks like that might have been what's happened here. At least that's what Brian Flores is claiming in a new lawsuit. I don't know if he wants me revealing our conversation before the show, but Dominic Carter, 
was saying to me before the show, this guy Brian Flores is never going to coach in the National Football League again because he's now going to be known as the guy that brings lawsuits. Brian Flores, who I thought was a very good coach with the Miami Dolphins, quite frankly. So it's not as if this is someone that's unqualified to coach an, an NFL team. Brian Flores filed a class action lawsuit yesterday against the NFL and all 32 teams alleging discrimination against black head coaches and executives. The suit's been filed here in New York, Southern District of New York, and he claims that the Giants interviewed him for their head coaching position in spite of the fact that they had already chosen the guy that's been named this week, Brian Dable. Flores maintains his interview was a sham in order to comply with this Rooney rule, which compels teams to interview minority candidates for head coaching and general manager jobs. Uh, The lawsuit reads, Mr. Flores was forced to sit through a dinner with Joe Schoen, the Giants' new general manager, knowing that the Giants had already selected Mr. Dable. Much worse. On Thursday, January 27th, 2022, so that is... It's less than 10 days ago, Mr. That's less than a week ago, much worse. On Thursday, January 27th, 2022, Mr. Flores had to give an extensive interview for a job that he already knew he would not get. An interview that was held for no reason other than for the Giants to demonstrate falsely to the league commissioner, Roger Goodell, and the public at large that it was in compliance with the Rooney rule. Well, Let's say he's right. Let's say the lawsuit's right. What do you think's going to happen? If you have a rule that says you have to interview black candidates for a certain job, of course this is what's going to happen. They're going to make believe that they're interviewing these people. The suit cites a text message from Bill Belichick, for whom Flores previously worked as a defensive coordinator in New England, which purportedly shows the Patriots coach congratulating Flores for getting the Giants job, even though he had yet to interview. Belichick seemingly corrected himself the following day. Quote, this is a text message from Bill Belichick to Flores. Sorry I effed this up. I double-checked and I misread the text. I think they're naming Dable. Sorry about that. So understand what happened here. Belichick hears they're hiring Flores. At least he thought he did. He texts Flores, congratulations. Then the next day, this is before he even interviewed. The next day, Belichick says, oh, they're, oh no, they're not naming you. Sorry, I shouldn't have said congratulations. They're naming Dable. All the while, this fellow Flores hadn't even sat through the interview with the Giants. So he's alleging uh, racism. The Giants deny Flores allegations. They said they really did consider Flores. But I do wonder on a practical level, no one is entitled to a head coaching job. I mean, there's only 32 teams. So these are very difficult jobs to get. Now, again, as I said, Flores is absolutely qualified to be a head coach. But um, if someone doesn't hire you, In my opinion, it's quite a leap to say that it's due to racism, which is what Flores seems to be implying in this lawsuit here. And he got this lawsuit together pretty quickly. He interviewed with the Giants January 27th, February 1st. He's already got a lawsuit filed. 
I don't know. I, I, I don't know why you would want to do this. As Dominic said, I don't think any team is going to want to hire him going forward. Now, maybe that's okay with him. Maybe he'll end up in Colin Kaepernick territory where you win for losing, where, you know, Colin Kaepernick didn't get to play football again. He claimed it was because he was discriminated against for his patriotic stand, tongue-in-cheek, on the uh, issue of the national anthem, but it worked out well for him. He gets uh, to go and be a Nike spokesperson. Maybe that'll happen with Flores. Maybe he'll get uh, to uh, get a book deal. Maybe he'll get a TV deal. Maybe the enhanced name recognition that he'll get by filing this lawsuit. And you know what the NFL is going to do. They're going to settle. They're going to settle with him. They're going to give him a whole bunch of money to make this go away so that it never goes to trial. But this, you know, I'm reminded of a New York Magazine piece that was written by Jeffrey Tubin, of all people about Clarence Thomas. And Clarence Thomas, and he wrote about this in his own book, Clarence Thomas talks about how he did, he doesn't trust black graduates of Ivy League law schools because, and which is ironic because he himself is an alumnus of an Ivy League law school and he happens to be black, because he thought that these Ivy League schools became so obsessed with affirmative action that he came to think that the black graduates of those schools were not as qualified as the black graduates of non-Ivy League schools and as the white graduates of other schools, of those Ivy League schools. And I do wonder if the same situation is at play here where there's a desire to have more black coaches. And if somebody gets hired who happens to be black, is there going to be people wondering, well, is that is that is that person being hired to increase the diversity in the NFL's coaching ranks? Or is that person being hired because they're the best coach for the job? And I'm concerned that this uh, Brian Flores lawsuit, look, I haven't read the whole lawsuit. I've just read the media reports of it. So for all I know, there may be a lot of merit to it. But I'm concerned that this Brian Flores lawsuit will only exacerbate that problem. Let's say the next head coach to be hired by an NFL team is black. Don't you think fans are going to be asking, well, are they only hiring him because he's black? Whereas when Brian Flores got hired by the Dolphins, I mean, look, this Rooney rule was in, in effect at the time. But when Flores got hired by the Dolphins, people were thinking, okay, that's the best qualified person for the job. So I'm curious what you think this will do to the future of hiring in the NFL. I'm curious where you think this lawsuit goes. And I'm curious, do you think that Dominic and I are wrong, that maybe that that Flores will work again? Because why would you hire someone that's in the habit of suing people that don't hire them? 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Corey is in Brooklyn. Hello, Corey. Hey, Frank. Just coming back on. Uh, I uh, played football with uh, Brian Flores in high school at Poly Prep. Um, I personally know him to be a guy of high moral standards and excellent character. My opinion is he's probably doing this to bring this to light 
the people to see that they're, you know, instituting this whole integration where they they have to interview black people and this kind this sort of thing. That's just my opinion. All right. Well, you may be and, right, uh, uh, Corey. Uh, appreciate the call. And uh, I didn't realize you were a poly prep graduate. You probably w- are uh, well acquainted with our friend Sid Rosenberg as well, who also was a, a proud graduate of, uh, of poly prep. And Bruce Charrett, who's going to be on this show tomorrow, was also a poly prep graduate, believe it or not. Uh, you know, the, the, there's quite a fraternity of poly prep people. You got Bruce, Sid, um, Joe Chacapina, Arthur Idala. There's this whole fraternity of folks that went to poly prep, and they've all done well for themselves. God bless them. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. We're going to do our crypto panel coming up in about 10 minutes, uh, maybe 15 minutes. Five open lines in the meantime, 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Janet is in Manhattan. Hello there, Janet. Oh, hi, Frank. Uh, I want to say something about affirmative action. I think there's a tremendous misunderstanding of what it actually is. First of all, this concept, and people are saying it now also with the with the upcoming Supreme Court appointment, um, the idea of saying we want the best person for the job. Well, there's no such thing as the best person. We all know there may be 20, 30, 40 people. Sure, there might be 40 people that could coach an NFL team uh, as yeah. well as anybody else. Yes. And there might be 40 women, men, uh, black women, who could be as good a Supreme Court justice as each other, sure. and certainly sure. as any white man or white woman or anything. Um, and I want to refer people to the most interesting thing I ever read about affirmative action was written by Colin Powell. There's an editorial. You might check it out. It was around 1993. It was an op-ed piece in the New York Times. It was, it was when Colin Powell was just um, – appointed to, what is it, I think he was the National Security Advisor, National Security Council for Clinton, I think it was. It was around 1993, and he explained how affirmative action works. You don't promote an incompetent person. He said he is a proud recipient of affirmative action, and he told the story of how he got where he got, which is he was a private in the Army, you know, wanted to make a career out of the Army, uh, his superior, lieutenant or whoever, wanted to promote someone. So the lieutenant said to his sub-person, you know, his sub-lieutenant, bring me a list of 10 names of people who deserve to be promoted. So the guy brought him a list of 10 names. Now, the lieutenant looked over the list and he said, I don't see any black people on here. Surely there must be a black person or two in our troop who's worthy of promotion. So go back, bring me another list and make sure there are one or two names of black people on it. That's how Colin Powell's name got on the list. Now, he was promoted. Now, whatever you think of his politics, nobody could say that he was not qualified for every job he had. And he's saying the way affirmative action works is we tend to overlook people who we don't expect to be qualified. And what that lieutenant did way back in the 1960s, he was clever enough to realize that the person who made up the list just sort of didn't notice the competent black people. There must be a competent black person in the troop. Bring me at least one name. And Colin Powell was the person whose name he brought. So Colin Powell was quite proud to say that's affirmative action. It means you take another look. You don't 
you don't promote someone because they're black, but you make a point of not not promoting them because they're black. You you notice your own little implicit bias to, to, to both people who look like you, and you get past it and you say, there must be a talented black person here. Let me find them. And when you So look, in the case of Brian them. Flores, uh, do you think he might be on to something here that maybe he was overlooked uh, because he was black and these interviews that he went on with the Giants and other teams – might have been due, uh, might have just been to adhere to this uh, Rooney rule, and they had no intention of hiring him. Well, I don't know. I didn't follow that closely, and I, I can't possibly speculate what happened there. But I'm sure that it's very hard, I think, for African Americans to know when they're being discriminated against and when they're not. You know what I mean? It happens so often, and certainly sometimes they might think they didn't get promoted because they were black, and maybe that wasn't the reason, but you can never quite know. Do you know what I mean? Well, sure. I I get it, Janet. Thank you. I'll be honest. When it comes to the National Football League, when it comes to most private sector jobs, uh, and maybe this is is an insensitive thing to say, I think there are very few instances of people not being hired because they're black. I think if you are the best person for the job, keeping in mind what Janet said, I don't think there are people, by and large, mostly in the private sector, that are not going to want to hire you because of your ethnicity. In fact, I'll be honest, I think there's tremendous pressure, especially in the National Football League, or any high visibility job, there's a lot of pressure to hire someone that's a minority. So I, I think that Brian Flores, the fact that he got a head coaching job with the Miami Dolphins to begin with, is in, an indication that black people can be hired. And now they he's also taking aim not just at the Giants, but the Denver Broncos. In this lawsuit, he's slamming John Elway... And the other Den- Denver Broncos staff, uh, the, the, the muckety-mucks at the Broncos, he's saying that they were completely disheveled for a 2019 interview, and he claims they were only trying to satisfy this Rooney rule. The Broncos call this, this allegation blatantly false. So, um, again, I didn't think that Flores should have been fired as the coach of the Dolphins, I thought he did a good job as the coach of the Dolphins. But I think for him to claim that these teams aren't hiring him because he's black, I I don't think there's any evidence of that, including what we're seeing in this. Do I think that what he's claiming here, that maybe the Giants already had their mind made up and they were already going with Dable, do I think that maybe there's something to that? Maybe. Maybe. Sometimes you go through the motions. And if you have a rule that says you have to interview a black coach, sometimes a general manager is going to have somebody else in mind. But because they have to go with this Rooney rule, they're going, going with the Rooney rule. And, and what's the worst that happened to Brian Flores? He got a free dinner, right? I would love the free dinner, somebody that wasn't going to hire me. That's happened to me in, in radio. I, I pursued different jobs, different opportunities, and I'm darn happy to get a free lunch. I never got a free dinner, but I have gotten a couple of free lunches. So um, after David Culley was relieved of his duties by the Texans, the only current black head coach in the NFL is Mike Tomlin. 
The Jaguars, the Texans, the Dolphins, and the Vikings have not yet named new head coaches. And uh, according, the league put out a statement saying the NFL remains rife with racism, particularly when it comes to the hiring and retention of black head coaches, coordinators, and general managers. Over the years, the NFL and its 32-member organizations have been given every chance to do the right thing. Rules have been implemented. Promises made. Oh, actually, no, this is not the NFL statement. This is uh, the statement put out by the uh, by the Flores team. Uh, promises made, uh, but nothing has changed. In fact, the racial discrimination has only been made worse by the NFL's disingenuous commitment to social equity. Please. I don't think that's true at all. So the league put out a statement. They said they will fight Flores' claims, which are, quote, without merit. I don't believe that's true at all either. I don't think the league is going to fight these claims. I think they're going to roll over and settle quicker than you can say two-minute warning. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Neil is on Staten Island. Hello, Neil. Hey, Frank. Uh, You know, what you said before is is right on the money. Uh, a lot of times they have their mind made up who they want to hire, and they go through the motions of interviewing. It's happened to my son. It's happened to me uh, in the 70s when I came meaning, out of the Meaning, Meaning you were the person that they were interviewing even though they had another candidate in mind? Yeah, well, mm-hmm. this, this, this discrimination uh, based on race it happened to me when I came out of the service. Uh, it was that time of affirmative action. I was discriminated against from uh, Mob Bell at that time and even the Plumbers Union. Uh, they told me right to my face that, you know, because of this, uh, affirmative action, I'm being put on a different list. Even when I got married, we tried to get into Starrett City, and they told me right to my face, we have our white quota already. Of course, they wanted to make it a black and white uh, type of community, and they wouldn't give me an apartment. They wouldn't give us an apartment. So when this guy goes for the for the NFL, a lot of times they have their mind made up. They know who they're going to hire, and they, they just go through that. And by rights, they do go through the thing. It happened to my son with the city. They knew they weren't going to hire the kid, but they interviewed him anyway. It, it, a lot of times, with especially with the city, if you have a halfway decent job, you put your application and they don't even give you an interview because they have so many people that are applying. So it, it's just like a big roller coaster, a big merry-go-round goes round and round, and it happens to all of us, Frank. The, thank you, Neil. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Pamela is in central New Jersey. Hello, Pamela. Yeah, I agree with that gentleman. A lot of, uh, you know, we've all been through it, you know, in the trucking industry for a long time. If you weren't Italian or Irish, you weren't getting in the union, you weren't getting a good paying job. And anybody who's been in the workforce, it's a lot of time. It's nepotism. It's who you know. It's the click. Of course, social and racial factors definitely play in there. So we've all been through it, you know, around and around and around all of the races, including whites, uh, whatever we've been and usually, like that guy said, they usually know who they want, and it's usually within that clique, like, you know, people who graduated together, people who uh, – and, and racial stuff has a lot to do with it. There's well, your Italian cliques, your Irish cliques, your white cliques, your whatever cliques. Yeah, uh, fine points all, Pamela. Thank you. I do think that the NFL had to see this coming. When they implemented the Rooney Rule back in 2003 – which mandated that you have to interview a black candidate for an open head coaching job, they had to know this was going to occur. 
Look, the Giants wanted Brian Dable for whatever reason. They like Brian Dable. They like the cut of his jib. But they're not able to just go out and hire Brian Dable. Now, think of how stupid that is. They know who they want for the job. They think this is the person that's going to lead the Giants back to the playoffs, back to the Super Bowl, but they can't hire him because they have to go through the motions of hiring, of interviewing a black candidate. Of course, when you have a rule that says that, this is what's going to occur. 800-848-9222. Tom is in New Jersey. Hello, Tom. Yeah, good morning. Uh, My opinion, when I heard this last night, I almost fell off my chair. Okay, this is all playing in part of affirmative action. If they're not qualified, they still believe they deserve the job. Well, no one's saying that is not America, and that's not the the way you run a business. Well, no one's. That's what I have to say. All right. Well, no one's saying that. Oh, all right. Well, Brian, Tom wasn't interested in having a conversation. He was interested in doing one of those drive-by arguments, right? But um, no one is saying, I want to be very clear, no one is saying that Brian Flores is not qualified. What I'm saying is I don't think the reason that he's not coaching a team right now has anything to do with racism. Additionally, I'm also saying that when you have something like the Rooney rule, that it becomes very likely that they're going to make a lot of these black candidates for head coaching jobs sit through these interviews, even though they have their mind made up already. Uh, Additionally, I do wonder if this is going to be a net positive for Brian Flores' career. And again, I like Brian Flores. As uh, Corey mentioned, the guy's from Brooklyn. He's from here. Only 40 years old, a very young man. And I think probably would have had a an opportunity to coach in his future, if not at the NFL, certainly at the collegiate level. A lot of college teams would have loved an experienced head coach like Brian Flores. But by doing this, by going full-fledged racial justice warrior, I think two things happen. One, I think Flores may end up benefiting from this, the same way that Colin Kaepernick has benefited uh, financially, politically. Media-wise. Additionally, I think that this makes it a little more difficult for the next candidate that's hired that happens to be black. Because I think you're going to have a lot of people asking the question, well, did they hire that coach because he's the, the, the most qualified? Or did they hire him because they don't want the NFL to look like a bunch of racists? I think he's making it, rather than doing what he claims he wants to do here increasing the opportunity for diversity within the NFL. I think he's making things worse, potentially. I don't know. 800-848-WABC. We're going to talk cryptocurrency in uh, just a bit, but uh, let me squeeze in a few more quick calls here. Mike is in Maine. Hello, Mike. Hey, Craig. Uh, sorry. <clears throat> you all right there? Yeah. You a little primate team? Yeah. Hi, it's Mike. Um, yes. Yeah, so I love your show. Thank you. And, uh, I know. I listen to you on the internet. Anyway, um, anyway, so I'm just where I live in Maine. I mean, there's hardly any black people, but we're not racists. It's nothing to do with that. I mean, because <laughs> I used to live in New Jersey, so a lot of my friends are black, and it's just like I don't know. Um, it's just who you are. You know, it doesn't really matter the color of your skin. So I don't know what the NFL's doing with that. But uh, 
Anyways, it's just crazy up here because we first moved up here from New Jersey. I live in Oakhurst, New Jersey. And uh, anyway, so my son was a basketball player, and, and you know the whole three quarters of the team were black kids. And we moved to Maine, and my son goes, "Dad, how are we going to win in games? There's no black guys, and there's no black." I said, "I don't think the other schools have many black kids people either." So just kind of a crazy thing. But all right, well, thank you, Mike. We'll let you uh, gargle with some warm water and salt, and uh, hopefully get a lozenge. Deal with that uh, that throat issue you have there. 800-848-WABC. Hey, Leo in Manhattan has been patiently holding. Hello, Leo. How are you? Yeah, hi, Frank. Uh, please be with me, patient as me. I was waiting for two and a half hours on this. I have still commented uh, why, despite all the safety measures, they are new. The deaths are growing on our streets. Uh, I have two valid reasons. One of them is nobody mentioned. 1980, the fastest race cars, Porsches and Ferraris, was having about eh, 220, 240 horsepower. I'm driving around Manhattan deliveries in Mercedes uh, minivan. I have 302 horsepower. My other car, which I'm using sometimes, is SUV, 400 horsepower. BMWs and Mercedes medium. And and the large S-Class or 7 Series from BMW have in these days between 350 and 600 horsepower. Mm. All the old rich people driving cars, which if you step on the gas, you can cross in four seconds be from zero to 60 miles an hour. One block of Manhattan cross in, in uh, three seconds. All right. Well, 60, 70 miles an hour. Any, any, anything to add on this uh, Brian Flores lawsuit, Leo? Uh, okay, I was having one more valid point why people die oh. in Manhattan. I, okay, mm-hmm. I'm a, I'm a professional driver. I'm drive every day, hundred, sometimes two hundred miles just in Manhattan City every day. All the delivery there is eighty thousand delivery people working in New York City. Eighty thousand. All these companies pushing the drivers to do limit. I work for DoorDash, but Grubhub, I'm an artist, but since the COVID, I'm working for DoorDash. Grubhub and Uber Eats is the same. Unless I taking all day long and all night long phone calls as I'm driving and texting and, 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 and touching in, in the app, I'm losing money. Uh, so th- that's leading to more distracted driving. Exactly. Interesting. All, all, that's... The, all the delivery people. That is a point I was, that I, I was, that is a point no one else raised. Leo, thanks for the call. Appreciate it. Bob is in New Brunswick. Hello, Bob. Okay. Hey, listen, I've been looking over the past couple of weeks in the newspaper, whether it be the Post or the Daily News, and they said his first interview went well, and they were going to give him a second interview, and that shows a lot of promise. But first, they were going to talk to the people that work for him, coaches, people around him and stuff to see, I guess, what his demeanor was or whatever else like that. And well, I think right, right, that but, might have had a... But, Bob, but but he is claiming in this lawsuit that Belichick texted him that they were going with Dable even before he had even interviewed the first time. So he's saying that that's, that's baloney, that, that they were lying, that they weren't going to go... Uh, they were going to hire Dable this whole time. Well, I mean, that could be true right there, but, I mean... 
the fact of the matter is, um, I didn't know that. I just caught on to your radio here a little bit while ago. I was sleeping, but the bottom line is, when I, if they made their their choice on Gable, if they can get him, but they had this guy as a backup too, and like you were saying before, it's probably going to benefit him in the long run, as like it did Kaepernick and stuff like that. And I don't know whether that's his intention or whether he really wants to get another job in football. Yeah, that's a good point, Bob. We're going to do our crypto panel next uh, where we have Simon Constable uh, joining us from across the pond. And uh, we're going to try and get a hold of the crypto cowboy, Drew Taylor, as well. If we have no Drew Taylor, then we'll just uh, chat with Simon Constable about a wide variety of financial issues, which Simon is certainly capable of uh, talking about. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. They say we're young and we don't know, won't find out till we grow. Well, I don't know if all that's true, cause you got me. Oh, yes, that's right. Sonny and Cher, I've got you, babe. Uh, those of you that are just waking up, uh, you know that by hearing this song, that it's Groundhog Day. And, yes, there is probably a good chance that you will be living the same day over and over and over again. But uh, hopefully it's a good one for you. Hopefully you're able to get a lot done and at least, uh, you know, at least have a groundhog that... Uh, does the right thing in terms of weather prognostications. We're going to keep an eye on all the groundhogs in our area. You got Holtzville Howe, you got Punxsutawney Phil, you got Staten Island Chuck. This is the new Staten Island Chuck, not the one that was murdered by, well, it wasn't a murder, it was a reckless, reckless endangerment by the former mayor of New York City, Bill de Blasio. I would guarantee you, though, that when Eric Adams meets the groundhog today, he is not going to be touching that groundhog because he does not want a repeat of what happened in 2014 when Mayor de Blasio inadvertently killed this groundhog and, and covered it up. No way he's going to be touching that groundhog. Bet your bottom dollar. I'll tell you what he is touching, and that is cryptocurrency. Uh, Eric Adams has decided that he is going to take his first few paychecks in cryptocurrency. Here's Mayor Eric Adams explaining his decision. The purpose of the Bitcoin is to send a message that New York City is open to technology. You're going to see a large amount of new technology in the city of New York and encourage our young people to be engaged in these new emerging markets. And I'm excited about the future of this city, and I'm excited about bringing my young people who have been historically denied access to new technology. Before I let you go. So crypto is all the rage right now. And so we had intended to have sort of a crypto panel where we have one person who's bullish on crypto debate someone that is a little more skeptical on crypto. But 
if I ever had to debate Simon Constable, I would pretend I was asleep as well. And that is precisely <laughs> what the pro-crypto people have done. But we're the big beneficiaries because that gives us even more time to chat with journalist, broadcaster, columnist, and the author of a terrific book, The Wall Street Journal Guide to the 50 Economic Indicators That Really Matter, Simon Constable. Simon, happy Groundhog Day. Happy Groundhog Day to you. I've been so excited all night that I could barely get to sleep, Frank. Um, This is absolutely true. I do do find the the crypto crypto craze interesting. Um, And and before we go any further, you're right, I'm a skeptic. I think the technology underlying it is very interesting. But um, not not the mania we've we've seen in, in the media and in some of the markets. It's uh, it, it's it's getting a little out of hand, and I think some fundamentals are being forgotten. So uh, before we get into all the latest crypto news, and it seems like almost on a daily basis, there's a ton of news related to cryptocurrency. We have a lot of listeners that might skew a little bit older. We may have a lot of listeners that. Uh, aren't necessarily that up on what cryptocurrency is. How do you explain cryptocurrency to somebody that is uh, totally unfamiliar with it? What is it? Um, Basically, it's an electronic token that cannot be replicated, that can be bought and sold. Um, And that's all it is. Um, Think of it like a baseball card that you might want to buy and sell, but it's electronic and they're all, you know, all the Bitcoins are identical and you can buy them in, in parts of them or, or buy them by the whole um, if you've got enough money. That's that's all this is. Um, and, and some people use them to um, speculate and some people um, accept them as payment. So, for instance, Tesla was accepting Bitcoin um, and other cryptocurrencies as payment for its Tesla cars. So you have the mayor of Miami who's getting paid in crypto. You, he wanted to actually pay uh, members of the municipal workforce in crypto. Eric Adams, the mayor of New York, being paid in crypto. And a lot of mayors around the country uh, mm-hmm. a- are actually viewing this, the mayors of Cleveland, Atlanta, other cities, as a means of addressing income inequality through cryptocurrency how does that happen? How does that work? How can um, cryptocurrency be a better means of addressing income inequality than than the conventional greenback, the dollar? So I, I don't think it can. <clears throat> I, I think um, I think it really actually will do the opposite. Um, and I know the intent might be good, um, but when when the intent is good but the outcome is is bad, then you've got something that's bad because the, the outcome is not good. And I don't doubt the uh, the good heart of, of the, the, these mayors of all these, of all these cities. But let let's first go through what money is. Money, right? There's a strict definition of money. It's a store of value, a medium of exchange, and a unit of account. And we can say that's true for a dollar, right? Your dollar today is pretty much going to be worth what it is tomorrow. Um, You can spend it, and that's how people um, transact most transactions, and it's a unit of account. Elon Musk's wealth is not measured in crypto. It is measured in dollars. Your wealth is measured in dollars. My wealth is measured in dollars. And some of it pounds because I happen to, uh, to live in the UK at the moment. But you see what I'm saying. That's, that, that's money. Crypto isn't money. So it, it's great. If you, if you have some wealth, you can afford to take a bet on crypto because if you lose some money, you can wait, wait it out until maybe the price comes back. If you're poor, what are you going to do? 
your grocery money has just gone down the tube. That's not very good. That doesn't help income inequality. And there's another thing here. America's unbanked, the people who don't have bank accounts, is, is a, a chronic problem. The, the U, big U.S. banks do not cater to the poor, uh, and they have not catered to the poor for a very, very long time, if ever. And that means there's a lot of people who rely on cash. So if this is a movement to get rid of cash, it's going to hurt the poor the most. Very interesting. This week, I think just yesterday, there was a story that there are proposals in some western states, including Wyoming and Arizona, to accept tax payments in Bitcoin and other cryptocurrency. Uh, Is that a wise move? If you were a state policymaker, should you be able to pay your taxes in Bitcoin rather than in dollars? Well, if, if that's the asset that the that the, the taxpayer has, say 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 Frank Morano has you know ninety nine percent of his wealth in cryptocurrency and you know one percent in cash, for instance, and that's hypothetical, um, then it would you know you say okay, well this is what I've got a lot of, I can give the government some of that. Um, it's not very good for the government unless they immediately <laughs> change it into dollars because they are not sure what actually they're getting. So um, cryptocurrencies have moved up and down in price in swings that make, you know, the crash of 2009 look uh, benign. You know, we, we've, seen, sure. we've seen these prices going up and down like a yo-yo. So if I was the tax collector in Wyoming, say, I'd be saying, great, pay, pay what you can in, in crypto, but I'm immediately going to send that to the market and cash it in for dollars, and then I'll put that in the state treasury. We did see cryptocurrency take a big plunge in value last month. What are people attributing that to, Simon? Why did crypto take such a bath? Is, just, is this the bubble bursting, or are there other factors at play here? I, I think this has got a lot to do with the fact that the entire tech sector took a beating. So I have a chart in front of me that looks at the S&P 500 and the, the NASDAQ. The NASDAQ is basically an index of tech stocks, or it, it's highly dominated with that. In the last three months, it's down 10% um, compared to the S&P 500, which is down almost 3%. So um, the S&P is much more di- diversified in terms of what industries it covers, but the tech industries taken a beating on the back of the idea that uh, the Federal Reserve is going to increase the cost of borrowing. And that means that investors have a choice between having a non-interest-bearing asset, cryptocurrency, or an interest-bearing asset, such as a bond or cash, which might get more interest uh, on account now. So I think it's that, it's that calculus that's going on in the head of investors that's saying, okay, great, now I know for sure I can get a better better deal on my bonds. Interesting. Now, putting aside the use functions for Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, let's just talk about Bitcoin and crypto as an investment vehicle. A friend of mine um, is going to buy a Bitcoin for his daughter, and he is of the belief that this is going to provide her with a lot of long-term financial security in the future. Do you think that at this point, Bitcoin, cryptocurrency in general, is a good investment for people? Not if it's all of your assets. If, if you had, you know, um, 
a million dollars and you put it all into crypto, I think that would be foolhardy. Um, I, I think um, if, if people have a little bit of money to, to put in it, it could go up. Now, I know Wall Street is, is embracing cryptocurrency as an investment and they're providing investment vehicles, exchange traded funds, futures contracts for people to be able to get in and out of this, this market. But Wall Street is also the same place that introduced subprime home loans, you know, dodgy loans, the ninja loans, no income, no job, no assets, and you give the money and you wonder why people don't pay their mortgage off. That almost destroyed the entire world economy. So Wall Street getting into it is is not exactly a plus in my view. Mm. They get into plenty of things that work and plenty of things that don't work. And who will be left holding the bag? It will be small investors. Um, you know, friend, friends of yours, friends of mine who, who bought this. So I think, um, you know, uh, you know, caution is, is advised. You have some, some money in, in it, um, but not certainly not all and everything of one's assets. I think that will be really, really foolhardy. If people are tuning in, we are talking with uh, veteran financial commentator Simon Constable, uh, he is the author of the book, The Wall Street Journal Guide to the 50 Economic Indicators That Really Matter. Uh, Simon, we, um, you know, we hear a lot about uh, the different possibilities for the blockchain. That's the technology that enables cryptocurrency to happen. Putting aside the, the uh, benefit or detriment of Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies, what do you see as the potential positive uses of the blockchain technology? Oh, I think the technology is very interesting. Um, one of the things that I've, that I've thought about is, so if, if you've ever, I worked in a corporation um, on, in the finance staff, uh, which meant we had to sort of get up data and, and look at how our investments are done in terms of new, new factories and that sort of stuff. You know, we put X money into the factory and how much money did we make from the products that were coming out of it. Well, the Bitcoin, um, not the Bitcoin, the, the blockchain technology would allow us to see what had gone in there and in an unalterable way. So in, imagine that basically you've got a, uh, you know, a, basically a, a security code of every transaction and that you can look back in history and see every single part of that. And that's very useful for auditors to say, okay, this was legit, this went in there, oh, this was a mistake and it was reversed, but we know everything that went on. It will help reduce fraud, help reduce waste. I'm not suggesting there was fraud in the company I was at, but um, waste is, is common mm. in companies because they just don't know what's going on. The, um, the blockchain technology will allow companies to know what's going on in a much more detailed way and in a much more secure way. We're seeing a, a number of cryptocurrency-related scams, a number of cons, a number of uh, fraudsters that are using the premise of cryptocurrency vehicles to dupe uh, certain unsophisticated investors. And that's one of the reasons I thought maybe it was a positive that Eric Adams was uh, trying to make cryptocurrency education a part of his platform because you'd hope that the more educated people are about cryptocurrency, the less they're likely to succumb to one of these scams. 
government appears poised to jump in with greater regulations of cryptocurrency. What sort of regulations should government be seeking to implement in the cryptocurrency sphere, as far as you're concerned, Simon? Uh, I, will, I will get to that. But let's first go back to the education bit. Um, I, I'm a believer, like, like many of my colleagues, that there should be financial education in school um, so that people understand how to balance a checkbook, how to budget, to know what's good investing and what's bad investing. Uh, that basically, when I was at school, there was nothing to do with that. And I studied economics. So, I mean, <laughs> you know, <laughs> there wasn't really fun. Right. If you're not learning how to balance a checkbook, nobody is. Nobody is, and that will be very useful. And I think in, in the, within the terms of that, if Eric Adams can say, great, you, you're going to learn finance a little bit of it at, at school, at least to give you the basic building blocks, and that will include something on crypto, I think that would be a very useful start, and I think everyone would deserve that. We all learn how to read and write. Um, we all need to know how to deal with money. It, money is a fact of life, and we need to know what is a good thing to do and, and what is a bad thing to do. Um, the, the, the regulations, I think, need to be transparency um, and, and, and basically deposit guarantees. Uh, one of the big problems I've seen with, uh, with crypto all along, and it's something that really doesn't happen in, in, in the futures market, is that sometimes crypto just disappears. So, you know, Frank's got, you know, you know, um, you know, 100 units in, in, you know, in an account somewhere, loses the password, can't get access to it again. It's basically gone. Or the, the place where this uh, crypto is stored gets hacked and it's disappeared and you can't get it back and there's nowhere to find it. So having like when you put money in a bank or when you put money in a brokerage that you can pretty much guarantee that if anything goes wrong with the bank or the brokerage, there's a way for you to get your money back. That isn't happening right. with crypto. You're, you're, you're done, right? If you have, you know, you know a, a billion dollars in crypto sitting on an exchange and, and it gets hacked, I don't know what you do. Right. What, what would you do, Frank? Right. I, I'd panic. Cry? I'd panic. That's right. That's exactly that would be the first thing. Uh, Simon, it is always a, a treat talking with you. Uh, after this conversation, I will not be asking uh, my employer, John Katsimatidis, to uh, pay me in cryptocurrency instead of dollars. Dollars are good. Do dollars are very good. You can, I think you can still get um, a slice of pizza for, for two bucks. That, right? That's right. It's going up quickly due to inflation, but, uh, but, there are, but you can still get a $2 slice, that's for sure. That's good. Simon, like, thank you like very your much. Pizza. Thank you, Frank. Have a great day. Appreciate it. Happy Groundhog Day across the pond there. Uh, th there you have it. Hey, speaking of inflation, inflation is bad. Last year, for instance, your dollar lost a lot of value. Inflation rose by almost six, almost 7%, actually, in just one month towards the end of the year. That means in 30 days, your dollar became 93 cents. This year, the stock market's been plummeting, and your portfolio is showing some trouble. Inflation is a silent killer. Gold provides a hedge against inflation and can protect your family's wealth. Legacy Precious Metals is the company that you might consider trusting for investing in gold and silver. You can trust Legacy Precious Metals because they give you unbiased counsel based on your individual situation. It's time to be proactive before you regret it and take steps now to protect yourself and protect your wealth. 
Call Legacy Precious Metals. They can advise you on all of this stuff, all of your options, whether it's rolling your existing retirement account into a gold IRA or whether it's holding physical metals directly in your home. You can speak to an IRA expert at Legacy Precious Metals at 866-932-0635 or uh, you can go to the website LegacyPMInvestments.com. Again, that's 866-932-0635 or download the free investor's guide at LegacyPMInvestments.com. WABC. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. Oh, come back, my love, don't run away. Come back, my love, come back to stay. I love you so well, I want you to know. I need your love so badly. Come back, my love. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. I'll tell you, usually when I leave here, uh, I'm pretty beat. I'm not necessarily thinking, not necessarily firing on all thrusters, as it were, right? Uh, Some people might say by the time I walk in here, I'm not necessarily firing on all thrusters. But uh, certainly by the time I leave here, you know, I have uh, poured everything that I have intellectually, spiritually, energetically out onto the airwaves for four hours. It used to be, you know, for five hours. It's all out there. Leave it all out on the field. So I'm, I don't always think clearly after the show, after I leave. So anyway, I, something occurred to me recently that, you know, we have a doorman in our building. And in the run-up to Christmas, we had a lot of discussion about how much I should tip the doorman. Now, I think the number we settled on for what I should give the doorman is, you know, this for our, our office, not at home, was $50, either 40 or $50. Matt Blaze seemed to think that that was a little paltry. He was trying to urge me to tip more, but I think I settled on 40 or $50. So um, I gave, wrote, a, you know, wrote out this tip where I, I had cash, but then I wrote out a Christmas card addressed to Omar. The, the doorman, and I gave it to him, and he nodded, and, you know, he said thank you. But then I realized recently, I think when we had a guest in studio here, that there are multiple doormen that work this shift, and they're both dark-complected. And a guest came up, and, um, and she made a—I think it was Marlena— she made a remark about how one doorman lets her in right away, another doorman gives her a hard time. And I said, well, which one was it? Was it Omar? She says, which one's Omar? I said, Omar's the one that's dark-complected. And he, she said, they're both dark-complected. And so since she said that, which I think was just last week, I've been wondering, did I give a Christmas card to address to Omar to the other guy that's not Omar? And I think I might have done that because I remember when I handed him the Christmas card, he didn't seem that appreciative. And I think it's because he was opening a Christmas card that had someone else's name on it. So I am concerned about this. They're both still nice to me, 
They both still wave. They both still smile. Uh, they both still, you know, let me into the building. But I'm wondering if I gave the wrong Christmas card to the wrong doorman. Or if I should have done multiple Christmas cards. Matt, do you know the guy's name that's not Omar? I do not. And which one is the one that is Omar? I think Omar is the other guy, not the guy who's there like tonight. The same guy that Marlene So not the about. one with glasses? No. The other guy is Omar. Omar is the guy without glasses. Okay. All right. Well, I've been calling him. I think I'm calling them both Omar. We'll see what happens. <laughs> Until next hour, your influence counts. So use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Hey, you ever just look at the calendar and think, where does the time go? And uh, I do all the time. And uh, the older I get, the more I think, where does the time go? That happened how long ago? Wow. Uh, That was one of the things that occurred yesterday. Do you know what yesterday was? Yesterday was the 40th anniversary of David Letterman's debut as the host of Late Night. 40 years. 40 years yesterday. Now, for those of you that follow Late Night Television, uh, you may know the history, especially if you were watching television in those days. Back then, again, if, if you're a little younger, keep in mind how different the media landscape was 40 years ago. There were not 9,000 channels. There were not remote controls that you could speak into and it would automatically pop up whatever you wanted to watch. You were basically slave to whatever was on four channels, maybe five. And then, you know, a little later, once cable came around, that was sort of a game changer. But it wasn't the kind of game changer that we're experiencing today. You know, it's funny. When my wife and I moved into our house, the fella that installed our... Our, uh, it's not a cable box, but it's like a streaming cable box. He said his daughter, who's maybe, I don't know, six years old, seven years old, has no concept that there are television shows scheduled at certain times, that this is on at this time, that is on at that time. Because we are very much in an era of you being able to watch whatever you want to watch at any time you want to watch it. That was not the case 40 years ago. And the undisputed king of late-night television for decades was Johnny Carson, who hosted The Tonight Show. And, you know, I spoke about this a little bit with Dick Cavett when Dick Cavett was on the program (laughs) recently, and it was great to talk with him. But there had been other people that hosted The Tonight Show prior to Johnny Carson Steve Allen, Jack Parr, others. 
But Johnny was really the one that perfected it. And because Johnny um, really was such a ratings behemoth for NBC and other networks kept trying to lure Johnny to their network to start their own late-night franchise, because he was such a ratings behemoth, he had an enormous amount of control at NBC, including some of that control was controlling the time slot that came after him. Now, for many years, the show that came after Johnny was uh, was Tom Snyder, the uh, Tomorrow Show. Then you had, um, it beginning in 1982, yesterday, an upstart, not quite a comedian, but an upstart, unconventional talk show host by the name of David Letterman. These days, that was when you could still say Letterman, and before the days of uh, non-gender personhood, you didn't have to say David Letterhuman, which you do today. And David Letterman started as the host of Late Night, which debuted right after The Tonight Show, and he had a lot of success. He Essentially, that became the show from the time he started hosting it in 1982 to the time he left that show to go to CBS in 1993. That was the hip show. If you wanted to be, uh, if you were young, if you were edgy, if you were controversial, if you wanted to see things that your parents weren't watching, you didn't watch The Tonight Show. The Tonight Show was your parents' thing. You stayed up to watch or come home, depending on when, when you were coming home. You stayed up to watch Late Night. Late night was the hip, young alternative to The Tonight Show. They would have weird guests that wouldn't make it on The Tonight Show. They would do weird bits. You'd see David Letterman shooting stuff off of the top of buildings and things like that. And it really was, in many ways, very much a groundbreaking television program. For the 11 years or so that uh, that Letterman hosted it, and then um, for the... I don't know, 16, 15, 16 years that Conan O'Brien hosted it. So you had Letterman host it for over a decade. Conan O'Brien takes it over when Conan, excuse me, when Letterhuman goes to CBS. Conan does it for 16 years before leaving that show to first host The Tonight Show and then host his own late night show on CBS. Then Jimmy Fallon takes it over after Conan does it for about five or six years. And then since 2014, I can't believe it's been eight years already. I feel like he just started yesterday, which goes again into the category of how time has flown. For the last eight years or so, the host of the show has been Seth Meyers, formerly of of, uh, Saturday Night Live. So yesterday, to mark the 40th anniversary of this show, David Letterhuman actually dropped by his old show, the show that he created, to talk with Seth Meyers. Seth Meyers, uh, and this is a very rare thing. He does very few TV interviews these days, David Letterman, since his retirement. So the two late-night hosts sat down. I haven't watched the whole segment yet because it aired uh, at around 12.55, right as I was going on with Dominic Carter. I started watching it. And then uh, Dominic wanted to talk about uh, what was coming up on this show. So I'm going to watch the whole interview 
after the show, but uh, Molly and Ryan were kind enough to pull a few uh, cuts so that we could hear some highlights. This was just, this was less than four hours ago. This was uh, Seth Meyers introducing the man that pioneered the television show Late Night on NBC. Our first guest tonight is the longest-serving late-night host in American television history and the original host of this program, which premiered 40 years ago tonight. Please welcome back to his show, the one, the only, David Letterman. Then, uh, you know what would have been nice, and they didn't do this, I wish um, that Seth Meyers would have had on all the hosts of Late Night, not just Letterman, but also Conan and Jimmy Fallon as well. I think that would have been a lot of fun. And it's funny, this show, I mean, the wasn't always called The Other Side of Midnight, but the overnight show at WABC has a very rich history. So one of the things that I tried to do when I took over this show is I invited on all the people that had done this time slot previously. Now, some are no longer with us, like uh, Art Bell. But, um, I, you know, I played an interview that I had done with Art Bell previously. I had on Brian Whitman, who hosted this show. I had on Curtis Lewa, who hosted this show. Others uh, who had hosted this show previously, I invited on, and they didn't want to come on for whatever reason. I'm not going to question it, but Steve Malsberg, Jay Diamond. Uh, I, I invited on J- Doug McIntyre. I had Doug on. There were all sorts of people, that, because you recognize, and if you're Seth Meyer or Frank Morano, that you're standing really on the shoulders of everybody that came before you. And that's what made what Letterman did 40 years ago in pioneering this show and making it a success. It makes it all the more impressive to birth a television franchise which has thrived for 40 decades in spite of all the changes in the media landscape is really remarkable. So Letterman uh, was talking about his uh, fear of failure before his first show, because he had done some shows on NBC and elsewhere that had not necessarily worked out well. It, they'd all been critically acclaimed, but there was the thought that maybe his humor was a little too clever. Maybe he wouldn't cut it as somebody that appealed to the masses. Letterman talked about that with Seth Meyer. What Myers. were your memories leading up to that night, the premiere? You had Bill Murray as your first guest. Oh, my God, yes. Well, uh, two things. First of all, what was I consumed by? Paralytic fear. Mm-hmm. Uh, because we had blown up the NBC daytime schedule a year right. previously. I, uh, we had a show, a lot of us had a show, that we thought was just great. And it was on for 90 minutes live, like 9 to 10.30 on, on NBC and it replaced two or three uh, game shows, and it, it turned out uh, America didn't want them replaced. <laughs> Cer- certainly didn't want them replaced by me, but when, when you're young, uh, one of the nice uh, complimentary features of being young is being dumb. Mm-hmm. And uh, we all thought, oh, television is the way television is because we're not there yet. When we get to television, it'll be fine. <laughs> We were wrong about that and many, many other things. So um, we were on the air for, I don't know, maybe six weeks. That's it for the morning show. That's it. Uh, six weeks, um, maybe, maybe two months. I don't know. And then I had to go to the end of the line. And how long did you wait at the end of the line before late night happened? Not too long. Well, speak for yourself. Uh, <laughs> 
it, it seemed like uh, an eternity because in show business, uh, if, if you screw something up like blowing up a network's daytime schedule, <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> uh, you, you know, it could be a while before they call your number again. Yeah. And uh, But eventually we came back and I was still living with this trepidation that, well, this can't possibly go any better than the other one went. But, so you have that aside, and on the other hand, you have Bill Murray, and you think, oh, my God, who can't love Bill Murray? So I had mixed emotions, and then the, the night of the show, I just felt fantastic. And then that lasted, I, I guess, till I my uh, feet hit the floor in the morning. And then the, the paralytic fear starts all over again. So I thought that was really interesting, and if you want to comment on this, either the the state of late-night television or where this particular show, Late Night, has gone over the last 40 years, you're welcome to do so, 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. You know, Letterman talked about that morning show that he did, that 90-minute live show. I think a lot of people don't even remember that he did that. And look, as he described there, even though I think they were nominated for an Emmy, the show only lasted six weeks. It's really wild to think about. 800-848-WABC. It's funny. One of the things that I've tried to do, and I've tried to enlist your help on this, is do things on the radio that nobody has done before. And Letterman really did do that. As the host of Late Night. Now, once he went to CBS and started hosting The Late Show, that wasn't the case anymore. At that point, he was very much hosting a show that was very similar to The Tonight Show. It was conventional. You'd have the same stars that went on The Tonight Show, the same sort of a format that was on The Tonight Show, but not on Late Night. And Letterman talked about that his efforts to be unusual were just that. They were, he made a concerted effort to be as unusual and as strange as he possibly could. We tried to be as unusual as possible because nobody, there was nothing else on TV in those days. It went away right after uh, Johnny Carson. So then we had this show and we tried to make it as unusual as we possibly could because we knew how many people actually watching. So uh, Myers came from a different place. Uh, He had a very different journey. And I'm looking forward to seeing the whole interview. I'm going to watch it um, after the show. But he had a very different journey in that Seth Myers had name recognition because of his career at Saturday Night Live. Now, Letterman really didn't. He did have that six-week run as the host of of that morning show. But it was um, nowhere near the kind of saturation that Johnny Carson had or even that Tom Snyder had. So it is uh, it is interesting. Um, I don't do, don't get to watch a lot of these late night shows because I'm working at the, at the time they're on. And it's not the same. I know a lot of people record them and then they watch them the next day. Uh, to me, it's it's not not at all the same thing. But when I do catch these late night shows, they're doing some they're all doing some interesting things uh, from what I can tell. But. Letterman, I'd say more so than anyone other than Johnny Carson, has been such an incredible pioneer in paving the way for everything that's done on late night television these days. So it is interesting. And I would love if this show, The Other Side of Midnight, continues in 40 years 
And uh, hopefully I'll still be around, if not hosting the show. Maybe I can come back from where, wherever I am, according to that, uh, that one caller. Uh, I'm sure I'll be uh, a, a resident at the Betty Ford Clinic or something by then. But they, hopefully they can bring me back uh, for whomever's hosting this show 40 years from now. Because to ha- build something that lasts in the world of broadcasting where, where, fl- where tastes are so ephemeral, where they change programming the way most people change clothes, it really counts for something. So I'm looking forward to watching that whole thing, and uh, and I, I'm curious if you saw it, what your impressions of it were. 800-848-WABC. You can comment on any of the other subjects we've covered today as well. Jim is in Ontario. Hello, Jim. Hello. 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 Yeah. Hello. Uh, give me a second. Oh, just give me a second. Give me a second. Grab the phone. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Okay, Brian, just give me a second. Oh, I'm just going to Okay. Hello. 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 How are you doing? Yeah. Yeah, well, you remember me. Well, you hung up with me a few times. But, Can't uh, imagine why. Um, yeah, I've got a better cell phone now, and I wasn't getting soaking wet. Uh, you have to stand outside to get a better signal. Yeah. So uh, what's going on there with the uh, – I don't know much about the, uh, the, the the theme that you're talking about tonight there. All right, so, Jim, what did you want to comment on, Jim? Uh, well, do I have my free to talk about anything or? Well, give it a shot. Hello? Well, I don't know. I could talk about anything. I was, I was thinking, I was talking to Curtis there and I was saying, I've got lots of material and all kinds of comedy stuff. And, uh, like I could make your phone ring, ring off the hook. Like, right. I, 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 I've I, never I, felt bad for Curtis him. until hello, now. Hello? Yes. Hello? Hello? Hello. hello. Don't hang up for me, please. Well, well then say something hello? substantive. Go ahead, Jim. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, I, I was telling Curtis. Curtis. Not familiar. Right? Like a week ago. A week wow. ago. Wow. And I got a hundred stories. Like, there's not too many people that stare a grizzly bear in the face from 10 feet away and flew with a pilot that can't even drive a standard car and he's got his pilot license like 10 months later. And, I just got all kinds of comedic stuff, and I was asking if he could just re- take a look at it. If I send you send the material, I'm in Ontario, like CFB Trenton, you know. Oh, absolutely! Believe me, I'm. Uh, I would love to take a look at that. So you survived going eye to eye with a grizzly bear, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the, the, he was warned. He was uh, he was doing uh, operating uh, on a uh, aircraft, and he was a. Uh, Doing, uh, they were doing, uh, what do you call it, um, uh, ground sonar or whatever. They're looking, surveying for mine, potential mine places up north. And then they got no-fly days, right? They got babies trained in the computer, operating the computer. And then it, so they, sometimes they have to land. The weather's too bad, and they had to stay at a, a camp, you know, a hunting camp or something for two or three days, no-fly days, eh? And then he goes out and he goes, watch out for the, 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 the some grizzly bears and some polar bears and he just be careful don't go near them. So when my my brother in law goes outside, he's having a smoke and all of a sudden he's looking at ten feet and, and this grizzly bear's looking at him right in the face like and he's oh my goodness. You know wow. what do you do? Well uh, I, I'm glad you survived, like Jim, and our audience is richer for it. 
uh, unfortunately, um, you know, once since you were able to get through, uh, that probably will mean the end of uh, Ryan's career as a telephone talent coordinator, uh, because it's not exactly the kind of phone call you want to put on your resume. But uh, but who knows? He had a good run. Uh, not so long as Letterman, but uh, a good run nonetheless. Mark is in Westchester. Hello, Mark. Uh, yes, Frank. I was lucky enough for the first time when uh, one of my uh, uh, girlfriends of my father, after he got divorced, uh, her brother worked at NBC. And uh, I went to see David Letterman twice live. And it was just there was that energy in the audience. It was the early 80s. I had just joined the Guardian Angels and Blase Skip. It was very exciting to be part of it. We had Lauren Hutton on the first episode and Matt Dillon on the second time I was given free tickets. Now, explain to folks, Mark, what was it that made Letterman so unique and so special? There's a lot of talk shows that could have Lauren Hutton on them. But what what was it that made Letterman, the experience of watching Letterman, special? Uh, to me, it was the fact that he was unpolished. Mm. He was not afraid to be a little bit awkward. His uh, humor could be passive-aggressive or straight out, if you understood the joke, aggressive. And he was just... Uh, Somebody that at my time I could relate to, even though he was older than me, it was a very young uh, show, and he had great guys like Tom Waits performing music. You wouldn't really have Tom Waits on Johnny Carson. He was a little more, uh, you know, going for the big, not the, you know, the regular guy style right, music. Right, No, no, no. I think that's a great observation, and I think you're right on the money there, Mark, and I'm glad you uh, I'm glad you got to see him, and I'm glad you had a good time, and I appreciate you sharing that. If people want to jump on board, they can do so. 800-848-WABC, seven open lines if you want to jump on board. 800-848-9222. But what Mark said there, I think, is right on the money. It's a, such an astute observation that Letterman's being unpolished actually enhanced his standing with the audience. You know, I always felt that way with Joe Franklin. And I used to watch Joe Franklin's TV show on Channel 9. And then I used to listen to his radio show many years later. And Joe was the opposite of a professionally trained broadcaster. Even though he had been a professional broadcaster for many decades, he was somebody that broke all the rules. He would say, uh, you know, uh, he would make... All sorts of weird noises. He would stutter occasionally. Sometimes he wouldn't be looking at the camera. He would fidget. He would do all sorts of things that weren't typical of a professionally trained broadcaster. He wasn't reading from cue cards. He'd have sometimes index cards written, you know, right, right on uh, in front of him, and just read from that. And sometimes he would just ask the most bizarre questions in the world. And sometimes he'd get questions wrong. Yeah, I mean, meaning he'd ask a question that was intended for one guest to the other guest. And to me, it only made him more charming. Now, Letterman didn't do it to that same extent that Joe Franklin did. But I think the fact that he was somebody that was sort of, you know what it was? It was almost like it was the kids getting control of the house, right? And Letterman was one of us. And all those other people were part of the establishment. Letterman was very, he was very anti-establishment 
Because that's the way I always viewed it. 800-848-9222. And it's funny the point that Mark made about the band. You know, it's funny. I, um, uh, Johnny controlled the show that came after him. So Johnny got to make the rules for every aspect of that show, whether it was Tom Snyder or David Letterman. Just as Letterman, when he went to CBS, he had that similar degree of control. He got to control the show that came after him. And interestingly enough, he chose to put Tom Snyder on there. But one of the rules that Johnny had for the show that came after him was you couldn't have a sidekick. Now, he had um, Ed McMahon. He wouldn't allow the show that came after him to have a sidekick because he didn't want it to be too similar. One of the other restrictions was the band for the show that came after him couldn't have any brass instruments because they didn't want the sound of that band being too similar to the Tonight Show band, interestingly enough. 800-848-WABC. Al is in Manhattan. Hello, Al. Hey, good morning. Another great show going on. Thank you. That guy, Still that plenty of time Canada, for that to change. I think the nurses are calling him back for his medication and Molson. <laughs> um, what I was going to say is what Letterman, the thing was, he was just incredibly different than, you know, your, let's say Jay Leno, for instance. You know, he would be having to appeal to everybody in America, from the farmer, the little old lady in Florida, you know what I mean, the Midwest. David Letterman had a, a very sharp New York, even though he was from Indiana, sharp New York uh, attitude, like, you know, his, uh, he was very edgy in that um, he was willing to say things that might even offend, you know, the, you know, the, you know, the general population, but, in a, you know, in a way that uh, was, uh, I'm sorry, I guess I'm in my throat here. Just, you know, that he, he just was different. I did see him live there and it was funny in the warmups, he'd come out and he actually used profanity, like in, in jokes, like, you know, and you just shocked by that, you know, kind of loosened you up. But uh, musical guests, like the gentleman said, with Tom Waits, spectacular, all top notch. I saw him there. He had Al Green on. Excellent, excellent. You know, everybody and anybody. And uh, his top 10 was, that was very new and innovative. Just all around good guy. And as far as when you retire, one day coming back, I believe Curtis has said, you're welcome anytime. <laughs> Take care. Have a great night. Thanks, Al. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Today is Groundhog Day. And uh, I'm, my wife every year watches the, speaking of Bill Murray, who was the first guest on the David Letterman, on uh, the David Letterman incarnation of uh, of uh, Late Night, she watches uh, Groundhog Day every year, the film Groundhog Day. It's one of my favorites as well. And I never got to see the Broadway show Groundhog Day. I wanted to, but it was in and out. I mean, I guess people didn't think it was that good of a show. It sounded good, and the music sounded pretty good from the show. And Bill Murray himself apparently really liked the show. But it was it was in theaters and it was out of theaters. So it is uh, really uh, a banner day. I've never put much stock into the ability of these groundhogs to predict the weather be, for a few reasons. One, how do you know if the groundhog sees his shadow or not? They're being interpreted by a, a human. So the human, I remember Bloomberg did this for you one year in 2005. He was running for re-election and he declared it to be an early spring. Bloomberg, I don't even know that that's what the groundhog told Bloomberg. 
But Bloomberg wanted the people applauding for it to be an early spring. So I think Bloomberg might have just said it was an early spring. How do these people even know what the groundhog is trying to communicate? I'm skeptical. I'm skeptical. Additionally, I don't know about the science of a groundhog or any sort of an animal seeing their shadow or not seeing their shadow and what that portends for the weather. I mean, why would seeing your shadow or not seeing your shadow either mean six more weeks of winter or not? But uh, you can bet that we are going to have a whole day of Groundhog Day programming here on WABC. We're all about uh, celebrating these holidays. So I'm sure we are going to be covering a lot of Groundhog Day stuff today, probably beginning with Bernie and Sid from uh, from 6 until 10. Uh, Chris Palmieri comments on Facebook, and you can find me on Facebook at Facebook.com slash MoranoFan. I've never had any interest in any of the late-night talk shows, but if there's one thing I do know about David Letterman, it's that he's quite a character. Yeah, you know, look, Letterman's done some things I like, some things I don't like. But the one thing that you can't take away from him is he was an innovator. And I'll tell you, one of the most interesting interviews that I've heard recently was a podcast interview that Conan O'Brien did with David Letterman. Now, Conan is, I think, a very skilled interviewer. And he does these great podcast interviews with all sorts of people. Uh, I've heard him with uh, Dana Carvey. That was terrific. And with uh, with David Letterman, who doesn't do a lot of these interviews. And to listen to them talk for 90 minutes about hosting not only this show, but late night shows in general, it was really something. And um, you can't, you really can't help but admire what he was able to do with this franchise. I think it's pretty impressive. I think it's pretty impressive. 800-848-WABC. Hey, you know what we'll do? Uh, we'll give you an opportunity to win $1,000 next. For seventh caller to 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. We'll give you an opportunity to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. And if you can, then you will be $1,000 richer. 800-848-9222. Be the seventh caller to participate in the $1,000 Minute. W-A-B-C Frank Marano 77 W-A-B-C I have heard among this clan, you are called a forgotten man. Is that what they're saying? Well, did you ever? What a swell party this is. And have you heard the story of a boy, a girl, unrequited love? Sounds like pure soap opera. I may cry. These are two of the greatest voices of the 20th century in a duet uh, that sounds just terrific. Frank Sinatra and Bing Crosby uh, singing Did You Ever? Uh, from the film High Society, which is a great film uh, starring starring both of them, if for no other reason than this song. There are days where I just get in a mode, uh, I just kind of get obsessed with watching things over and over again or listening to things over and over again. And sometimes my obsession will lead me to, on the YouTube, listening to this song over and over again because it's so fun. 
to watch Bing interact with uh, Frank Sinatra. It's really something. Hey, speaking of uh, shows that I just love, uh, coming up in just a moment, we're going to talk with the man who is the almanac of New Jersey politics. He's the host of the New Jersey Globe Power Hour. I listen on uh, Saturdays here on uh, WABC, and I have just become a big, big devotee of the New Jersey Globe. We're going to talk with David Wildstein in just a minute, not only about what's happening politically in New Jersey, which is pretty fascinating in and of itself, but the fact that a New Jersey political consultant was evidently involved in this murder plot. Now, we take our politics seriously in New York, but nobody's getting murdered. Stay tuned. If you haven't heard about this story, it's a wild story. And with the exception of some outlets like the New Jersey Globe, I don't think that this story is getting its just desserts. Because every day that we learn more about this story, there are more and more questions. Quite a mystery. We're going to get into it with David Wildstein in just a minute. But first, it is time for... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Moreau. Ah, yes, thank you, Chris Libertini. Let's meet today's contestant, Joanne in Plainview. Uh, Joanne, I was in Plainview uh, one day for about two weeks. It was certainly an interesting town. Yes, it is. All right. Joanne, you're familiar with the contest? You've heard the $1,000 Minute previously? Yes, I have. All right. So you're I don't need to re-explain the rules to you, right? You know you know what you're right. doing. Okay, great. Are uh, you ready to get started? Yes, I am. All right. What season are we currently in? Oh my god. I can't believe this. What month is it? February winter. What rodent is thought to be able to predict the weather by seeing his shadow today? The groundhog, which is tomorrow's groundhog day. What country is hosting the Winter Olympics this year? Tokyo, I think. Unfortunately, well, it's actually um, uh, Japan is also incorrect. It's actually China. Um, It is China. But but it's called they're both in Asia. You had the right continent, wrong country, right continent. Joanne, hang on. I should know that. I even know the colors of the ring: blue, black, red, yellow, and green. Well, unfortunately for you, that was not one of the questions. Joanne, hang on, hang on. We're going to put you on with Ryan, which uh, I know is. Uh, adding injury to insult after uh, losing this contest. But give Ryan your information, and we're going to send you a complimentary The Other Side of Midnight Baseball cap. And you know what you should do? Do what the fellow that that wrote to me yesterday did, and take a picture of yourself with this cap, post it on social media, and send me a copy also. We'll get the word out there. Somebody that uh, should have his own gear in the WABC radio store is David Wildstein. I have become a big fan of... Of David Wildstein. I always knew who David Wildstein was. I thought, okay, that's a smart guy. He's accomplished a lot in politics. He's a little bit controversial, which I kind of like. But since he has been the host of the New Jersey Globe Power Hour, I listen transfixed each week, and I wonder, how does he get these guests? How does he get these guests to keep making this much news? And how does one person know so much about Garden State politics, and I am just thrilled that he's occasionally agreed to uh, come on early on the radio with us. David, thanks so much for joining me. Good morning, Frank. How are you? And congrats on the ratings. I heard your great news. Oh, Terrific well, thank well you. Well deserved. Thank you very much. I, I appreciate that. And uh, 
And uh, I, uh, I, I'm honored to call you a colleague, sincerely, David. Um, now, you are the editor of the New Jersey Globe. That's sort of become New Jersey's go-to political publication, whereas other New Jersey publications are uh, sort of a shell of their former selves. They're laying off staff. They're merging with other papers. They're doing less and less political coverage. It seems like the New Jersey Globe is only expanding its reach and its uh, and its volume of coverage. Before we get into this fascinating murder plot. Um, talk to me about what's happening with gerrymandering. One of the things we're seeing in the the red states, Republican-led states, is the red states are about to become a whole lot redder because Republican legislatures are redrawing the lines to allow more Republicans to get elected. Here in New York, the Democrats are doing the exact opposite. Uh, they may, through gerrymandering, cost the Republicans three, maybe even more, congressional seats. What's the situation like in New Jersey, where there's also a Democratic legislature? So in Jersey, we have a, an, a commission uh, of six Democrats and six Republicans. They draw the commission together when they can't agree. They each, and by, and by the way, I should start out, Frank, by saying it's a mess. That what happened there was was an absolute mess. Uh, but they, they put in Two names to be the tiebreaker. Uh, the Supreme Court in New Jersey picked uh, the Democratic name, a former 79-year-old retired justice who, who uh, I think, I think, I think, totally screwed up the entire system. He he put in a map that uh, that that just didn't make sense from some of the own things he was saying. I mean, he's a, a guy who who just. Wasn't really negotiating. He said, all right, you do your map, you do your map, and I'll pick one. And he picked the Democratic map. And if you remember, the first map he picked, the first time he actually voted on this, he sits in this in this meeting and, and essentially, I think he threw up on his shoes. He says, "The I'm picking the Democratic map because the Republican map won last time, and it's the Democrats' turn. Wow. I mean, just and people from both sides, their jaws just dropped, and they're they're thinking this guy was a Supreme Court justice, and these are his reasons. So the the Chief Justice, I, I guess he agreed with that. He looked at it and he 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 said, you know, Mr. Justice Wallace, you need to amplify your reasons for picking it. Come back to us in a week and give us better reasons. And you know, and I'm I'm sure, by the way, Frank, that's the same treatment you and I and everybody else here would get. Right. You make a mistake. You totally screw something up. And, and be, they, they come back and say, well, why don't you take another shot? Why don't you amplify your reasons? Maybe 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 figure out a better way to get yourself out of that trouble. So he came back and he amplified and he he, he didn't do a very good job with that either. He just said, well, you know, my reason for picking this because I like the Democratic map better. Would he have had the option to sort of have uh a, a a third map, sort of a third way, a compromise between the Democratic map and the Republican map. Sure, I mean I've been I've been doing this a long time. This is my fifth decade of of redistricting in New Jersey, and I've seen that tactic over and over. The the tiebreaker says, well, I'm going to draw my own map, and I'm going to see if I can get one side or the other to support me. And sometimes they even use it as leverage for the two sides to get together and pick something. And and the result of this map, there were. There were four congressional seats, and you, you know this better than I do, Frank. Four seats is a lot when you're only five seats out from a majority. And there were four seats that, that over the last 10 years have been in play. The Democrats have picked them up. This could be a bad year for them. Historically, the president 
party loses seats in their congressional elections. And what they wound up doing with this map is they, they screwed over one Democrat. And by screwing over one Democrat and taking the, you know, they may be taking this map from 10-2 Democrat to 9-3, giving Republicans a seat. But the result may be that the other three seats are not winnable for Republicans anymore. Uh, so they are. It's, it's interesting. So which Democrats district is getting screwed? Tom Malinowski, and he's running against Tom Kane Jr. I see. Tom had been the the Senate Minority Leader in New Jersey for about twelve years. He's been the been in the legislature for twenty. His dad was governor. And just so folks are are clear on what's going on, this the elections that take place this year will take place under the new lines uh, right. with uh, three possibly right leaning districts and nine heavily left leaning districts. Yes, yes, and and it's. They used a group called the Princeton Gerrymandering Group. Uh, this is supposed to be a group that watches out for gerrymandering. And, and you know, it's, it's, by the way, a great example of what happens when you take a group of academics whose job across the country is they wait until somebody passes a map, and then they come in and they inspect it. They, <laughs> they decide, well, okay, we're going to review your map, and we're going to give you a grade. And you put these professors now in a room in New Jersey – and you say, all right, I'm going to I'm going to let you make the sausage instead of you commenting, holding your nose, saying it's really disgusting how that sausage is getting made. We'll let you come in and we'll let you make it. And you know what they did? They 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 put in a, a map that was gerrymandered. They they drew they they participated in a project that, that where where towns were where they shouldn't be. And they made mistakes. And and. You know, I'll give you one mistake is they they at the end of the day, they took one town. It was Caldwell, New Jersey, and they put it in a district with Newark and East Orange and Elizabeth. And they didn't mean to put Caldwell. They meant to put West Caldwell. They made a mistake. They oh, all right. And now what what happens with the state legislative district lines? Are, the, are we going to see any market difference in those lines be being they uh, becoming more Democrat, more Republican? Yeah, that one, that one too is a mess. But you know, it wouldn't be New Jersey if it wasn't a mess. <laughs> uh, there, there is a bipartisan panel. Another judge appointed as the tiebreaker, a guy named Phil Karchman. From everything I hear from both parties, good guy, really diligent, trying to avoid some of the mistakes that were made at the congressional level. Uh, but the big news last week in New Jersey is Steve Sweeney, the the former Senate president, a man who was uh, uh, the Second most powerful elected official in the state. He had been Senate president for 12 years. If you remember, he lost his own state Senate seat last November. Right. You, blo- you a- broke that story with me. Uh, yeah, to a, yeah. yeah. Early in the morning. I mean, it was it, 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 he, he took his eye off the ball and a truck driver named Ed Durr, who spent about $2,000, beat him. And. And Sweeney's never been, despite all the power, never really been the most popular guy among a, a big segment of the Democratic Party. So this last week, uh, the Democrats dumped Sweeney from the commission. They said, yeah, you know, you're 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 a has been. We don't want you anymore, wow. is essentially what they said. And they they took his seat away from him. He went to court yesterday and and a judge agreed with the uh, the democrats and said no sweeney you're gone you know there's they can they can fire you you're an at will appointee well i mean i'll tell you and you've reported that he may still be a gubernatorial candidate in 2025 uh, so i'm sure if he ends up winning uh, he's going to have some scores to settle but 
Let me ask you this about... This Jersey, by the way. There's, if you don't have scores to settle, <laughs> why run for the office, right? <laughs> well, let me ask you about one of the fascin- most fascinating stories in New Jersey, and I think probably the whole country, and that is the situation involving Sean Cattle. Now, uh, before we get into the latest news with Sean Cattle, who was or who is Sean Cattle? What did we know about him? What was his history in New Jersey? So Sean Cattle was a low-level Democratic operative. Uh, he he was he was this this guy who came in and, and turned out voters and made deals and 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 won some some school board races in Elizabeth and a couple other local races. But but as consultants go, you know, people knew who he was, but but nothing of any 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 uh, rank or, or or stature. Okay, so then the news comes uh, from the U.S. attorney that Cattle actually pled guilty to one count of murder for hire, having hired two people to kill a former associate. Now, this is an amazing story. Why would a political consultant hire anybody to kill anybody? What do we know about the people involved here and what happened, David? Yeah, and I think, by the way, the, what we don't know would, you know, would would stop a moving train mm. right now. Uh, the U.S. Attorney knows; they know what's going on. They're playing this out on their own schedule, but they're they're leaving a lot for the imagination. This guy, this guy went before a federal judge last week, and he he pled guilty to hiring a hitman to murder a guy named Michael Galdieri from Jersey City. Uh, Michael Galdieri, also in politics, low-level operative. His dad was, I mean, I knew his dad. His dad was a state senator from Jersey City for, for, for a little while. Galdieri was a uh, was a Republican? He was a Democrat. Okay, so this is a Democrat-on-Democrat Democrat political murder. Democrat murder, yeah. And and what what we don't know is is, was this a grievance between... Cattle and Galdari, and Galdari wanted him killed, or is it bigger than that? And I'll, I'll take it, I can tell you personally, I don't think you go, I don't think a judge hears a guilty plea on a murder and says, all right, you know what, we're going to put an ankle bracelet on you, stick around your house, and we'll get back to you. Typically in a murder, they, they remand you to prison immediately when you, 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 you admit your guilt. So it's causing a lot of people to think that. Cat, the grievance that got Michael Galdieri murdered may not have been Cattle's grievance. It may have been somebody else. And, and Cattle was circulating among all these different Republican circles. And then you've got this new John Sheridan twist to it that just, just blows everybody's mind. So now not Cattle uh, has pled guilty, but also the hitman himself that carried out the murder at Cattle's behest has also pled guilty? Yeah, he's he's appeared and and he uh, he has indicated his guilt. There's a uh, guy named George Bradamus. He's from Connecticut, and he is. Uh, uh, I mean, by the way, this is this is sort of insulting to. You know, there's two things in Jersey, and I, and I hope the tone of mine comes across as being a little sarcastic. But but there's two things New Jerseyans don't go to Connecticut for. You don't go there for your pizza, and and you don't go there to hire a hitman. But. <laughs> But this is what this guy did. He went to Connecticut and he hired a career criminal, and and this was a bad guy. He's you know seventy four years old, been in and out of jail for most of his adult life, and and he, that's who he hired. And, and what they did is they they came to Michael Galdieri's apartment and they stabbed him, 
and they set his house on fire. So, wow. Uh, so, okay, uh, the Sheridans. Mark Sheridan is a uh, Republican attorney. His parents, John and Joyce, died. And at the time, we were told uh, what about the death of his parents? So originally, and by the way, Mark Sheridan is an attorney at the highest levels of politics. He was he was Jack Chitterelli's counsel during the last campaign. John Sheridan was commissioner of transportation under Kane, uh, Governor Kane. I mean, a, a sweetheart of a guy too. Just a, just an incredible, incredible man. I, I knew him. You know, I first met him in the early 1970s. Uh, the originally the uh, the death was ruled a murder suicide. Uh, the prosecutor claimed that John Sheridan stabbed his wife, and then stabbed himself and set fire to his home. Mm. So what you have here is a stabbing and a fire. So, which is very similar to the circumstances in which Mr. Galdieri was killed. Right, and, and within the span of a couple months. And um, what is Mark Sheridan saying about the possibility of Sean Cattle being involved in his parents' death? So he's he's looking at the similarities. A, a somebody gets stabbed, and then the house is set on fire, and they they eventually only because of Mark Sheridan and his brother's dogness did they finally get the the cause of death ruled from suicide for his dad to uh, to undetermined. But this happened in 2014. It's a cold case. Nobody's really been looking at it. And what Mark Sheridan uh, maintains is, is he brought in his own pathologist, his own medical examiner, to look at everything after the, the Somerset County Prosecutor's Office did. And he found that there were two knives in the area, and and one could have killed his mother, but they didn't find the knife that killed his dad, and you know I I think it's I mean I'm not a I'm 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 not a, a in law enforcement and I'm not a lawyer and I'm not a pathologist, but it it doesn't make sense to me if you're gonna if it's a murder suicide, the the weapon doesn't disappear, yet nobody found the weapon that killed his father. So get this, this is the part that I think is is just you know certainly has everybody's imaginations going, including Mark Sheridan, and that is that when George Bradamus was arrested on bank robbery charges two days after his parents' murder, they found a kitchen knife in the guy's car. Wow. So they want to know, uh, and, 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 you know, you think about politics. You, you've, been, you've seen a lot, too, Frank. I mean, people make some unreasonable requests. I think this one's entirely reasonable, which is, which is, Show me a copy of the knife. Show me a picture of the knife that was found in in the hitman's car, the guy who who killed Michael Galdieri at the request of Sean Cattle. And let's look at the map and see if that's the missing. Let's look at the knife and say, is that the missing knife from my parents' kitchen? Um. Last question about this, and it's just such a fascinating uh, case. But one of the many bizarre things about the, and we're talking with David Wildstein. Listen to him Saturday afternoons on the New Jersey Globe Power Hour. Read the New Jersey Globe; it is the go-to political publication for if you're interested in learning about the bizarre world of uh, New Jersey politics. Do check it out, NewJerseyGlobe.com. Um, one of the many bizarre things is the day before his guilty plea. Sean Cattle was still working 
as a political consultant. Apparently, he had a whole conversation with former state Senator Ray Lesniak about a a forthcoming political uh, venture that they were going to work on together. And he didn't mention, oh, by the way, I'm about to plead guilty to a murder for hire plot. No, I mean, it's that's strange. And you're you know, you're also getting you're getting Ray Lesniak's been around for a while. We don't we don't know. I don't I mean, I I I'd be. Uh, I, I hope that Ray Lesniak, you know, is 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 being honest about his, you know, his situation here and whether that call really happened. I, th- I think it probably hmm. did, but you know, it, it happens, right? You're you get in you get in trouble and you try. You're in denial and you try and you don't want anybody to know until the schedule goes. So you keep yourself uh, you keep yourself busy. And I think that may have been what he was doing. Interesting. Uh, hey, I got to run, David. Uh, always such a treat to talk with you. I'm going to be listening to you Saturday afternoon and certainly reading uh, the New Jersey Globe on a regular basis. Thank you, Frank. Thanks for having me on. Thank you, David Wildstein. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. Hey, we'll do 15 seconds of fame straight ahead. Dr. Gil Lederman, people were saying, that Lederman guy, do you think he can do something for me? And I'd say, yeah, you go for him. We see many people with cancer in whom standard radiation, chemo, or surgery just didn't work. Dr. Gil, how's radiosurgery different? Radiosurgery is highly precise, non-invasive treatment that usually works even if standard radiation, chemo, or surgery didn't work or isn't tolerated. With radiosurgery, I'm not going to be crashing like after chemotherapy. Usually radiosurgery is very well tolerated. And the alternative to going under the knife. Yes, there's often non-invasive options like radiosurgery. This is Curtis Lee. Dr. Gil Lederman is the go-to guy whenever it is an issue involving cancer. I know so because I've gone for my father, other family members. So put yourself in the hands of Dr. Gil Lederman for your cancer treatment. That's 212 Choices, 212 Choices, 212 Choices. Dr. Lederman, first in America, accept no imitation. That's what everybody's talking about. Talking about John. Judge Janine Pira. Sunday morning at 11. It's the Judge Janine Tunnel to Towers Foundation Sunday morning show. Judge Janine Pira. On 77 WABC. Talk Radio 77 WABC. WABC. Start your morning with Frank Morano on 77 WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight, this Groundhog Day edition of The Other Side of Midnight. And it's your opportunity to be heard for 15 seconds, 800-848-9222, because it's time for... The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Mike is in New Jersey. Hello, Mike. Morning, Frank. Frank, The View. Five talking heads sharing one brain with a low IQ, probably in the double digits. Low double digits. Eddie is in Nassau County. Hello, Eddie. For criminality above and beyond the call of duty, arrest Joe Biden. Let's go, Brandon. Jay is in Cincinnati. Hey, Frank, uh, we call groundhogs whistle pigs out here in Ohio. (laughs) That's not bad. Tom in the Boogie Down Bronx. Read the Janine Machine by Richard Blasberg and Twisted Justice at CNN.com. Janine Machine by Richard Blasberg and Twisted Justice at CNN.com. Janine Pirro is an Arab criminal and a fraud who sent an innocent near to the cop to prison. Ray is in Woodhaven. Hello, Ray. The referee for this hour of wrestling, Gilberto Roman. The doctor in attendance at ringside, Dr. George Zahadian. Those were the days. 
Neil on Staten Island. For four years, the Democrats were crying like babies that Merrick Garland didn't get a Supreme Court nomination. Now when they have a chance to right the wrong, who do they pick? A black. Dave is in Ohio. Good morning. Rather than censorship, I propose an open discussion to that end in four. Leo is in Manhattan. Somebody should tell the school, uh, the high school dropout Goldberg that the lack of different skin of color of Jewish was uh, displaced by, by Nazi, by the David Starr on the clothing. Clara is in Manhattan. Hi, uh, Frank. Uh, could you kindly put some of the pictures on your Instagram account that you talk about Facebook? Because I'm not on the on Facebook. I will Thanks. do that. I will put uh, Watson wearing the other side of Midnight Shirt on my Instagram at Morano Vision, M-O-R-A-N-O Vision. Fred's in Yonkers. Hey, Frank, what's with all the exponential multiplicity of your mug? I get the same feeling when I go to the post office. We want the flurry dories. We want the flurry dories. Charlie is in Hell's Kitchen. Sid Rosenberg is not a moron. Sid Rosenberg is not a moron. He's a very professional broadcaster, and it's the caller who constantly calls up and says Sid Rosenberg is a moron. He's the actual moron. Well, uh, there you go. Well said. I'm glad somebody's sticking up for Sid. Hey, uh, the WABC Early News is next. I'm going to be back at 1 a.m., I think, with Frankie Valley. We'll see. Uh, until then, uh, be sure to listen to Bernie and Sid from 6 to 10. Frank Moreno, good day.